there's no more room in hell. The dead will start a podcast. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the latest episode of No More Room in Hell. It is episode number 43, and I am Mike, introducing as well Venom. How are you doing, Venom? Hey, that's Mr. Venom to you. Greetings and salutations, <laughs> folks. I'm doing pretty well, Mike. How the hell are you? Pretty good, and I don't know why I said introducing, as if it's your first time doing the show, but... Uh, yeah, I thought I'd give this podcasting thing a try. He usually does that to the third host the most, so... <laughs> yeah, really. Uh, also here, as always, it's Derek. What's up, Derek? How are you? I never found my skulls. <laughs> He's still looking for his damn skulls. <laughs> uh, still waiting for that episode one of the Trent Williams podcast to come out soon. But anyways, Mike, I'm good. This is great. These are my picks. It's awesome. We have a guest here. It's great. Yeah. And you've uh, retained your role as uh, the person to go out and grab guests. So with that, I will give you the honor of introducing our guest. Who is it, Derek? Sure. Uh, Ironically enough, this person was supposed to be joined by her sister on this very episode. Unfortunately, her sister couldn't make it. Uh, she's very busy because she does like multiple shows a day, as we know, uh, as her sister knows. This is, of course, the sister of Lacey Lou, one of the many co-hosts of the Slumber Party Massacre, Nikki Williams. What's going on, Nikki? <laughs> Hello. Thank you all for having me. I am very grateful to be here. I actually um, really enjoyed the episode you guys did on No More Room in Hell with um, when you talked about your top 10. I got some really cool recommendations from that. And yeah, I absolutely love your show. Thank you. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Thank you, Nikki. Uh, And also for those unfamiliar, Nikki actually was on Fresh Cuts a couple times way back in the day. And uh, you reminded me before we started recording, that was, I guess, your first time podcasting. So, Yep, it was with you, my sister, and Dan, and we uh, podcasted about the haunting of Hill House, the first season. Well, I guess there was only one season of that, and then it was what we discussed was Blind Manor, the second season. Yeah, and um, I, I remember at the time... I can't even remember how it came together that you joined us, but I just remember thinking, like, afterwards, I think I was talking to Lacey, I was like, that was really Nikki's first time podcasting, because you seemed pretty, like, comfortable with the situation, like, not nervous at all, or not second-guessing, so I was like, yeah, that was, like, a really fun experience. I was, like, hoping that you had fun doing it, because I was like, I hope she keeps podcasting, because I thought she did really well. Oh, thank you. Yeah, I am very passionate about film and movies. So when it comes to talking about them, it, it is something that's very natural because they're, they just live in my heart. <laughs> so thank you. 
Yeah, yeah, it's yeah. And of course, uh, Nikki guested on my other show, Cinema Attack, and she was fantastic. That was, you know, under the circumstances too, because uh, Dovey didn't show up for that episode, and you know, it was a great conversation we had about three like zombie movies out of nowhere, and it was. It was a great time. That's actually one of my favorite episodes I ever recorded, The Cinema Attack. And not, you know, usually if worst-case scenarios happens when, a, you know, one of the hosts leaves, it's like, oh, my God, how is this going to handle? Is it going to be okay? But it, it was so smooth. It was like nothing ever happened. And this is a great episode altogether. Yeah, I really enjoyed being on that episode with you as well, um, learning about... Italian zombie films and those were the first time I had seen the three films that you chose for that show and I enjoyed all of them thoroughly. They were a lot of fun to talk about. Hell yeah. Cool. Well, you know, now um, that you're podcasting outside of the scope with all your uh, Slumber Party Massacre co-hosts, feel free to, you know, say whatever you truly feel about them on our show and uh, we'll back you up in that. (laughs) <laughs> I, yeah, I, I love got them stuff all. To say about Rebecca. <laughs> <laughs> no, I love all of them. <laughs> all right. Well, uh, with that said, introductions are out of the way, so we will kick it off like we usually do, and kind of catch up on what we've been watching. Hey, you know, for the first time in a while, it hasn't been super long since we last recorded, so hopefully this becomes a habit again of ours. So. Uh, we sh- we probably don't have like a long list of stuff like usual, but uh, Venom, I'll kick it to you first. So, what do you got up? All right, so I will start the festivities with probably the newest film that'll get talked about, as this one was just released two days ago. Um, this is another weekend where we got two major theatrical horror releases. So, obviously, you know we're going to cover one of them on Fresh Cuts. And the other one I'm going to talk about right now, and that is Umma, spelled U-M-M-A. For those who don't know, Umma is the Korean word for mother. And the movie is an American production, but it does star Sandra Oh and a couple of other uh, Korean actors as well. So it still very much has an Asian cinema vibe, but very solidly grounded in American horror. Uh, Basically, it's the story of Sandra Oh's character, Amanda, and her daughter living a quiet life on a farm. Um, Amanda claims to have a condition that causes her to get sick when she's around electronic items. Um, So, of course, they live on a farm with no power. They use all gas lighting, you know, uh, gas lamps and candles and things like that. And obviously, Amanda has a little bit of a troubled past with her own mother back in Korea. And I'm going to leave the setup at that. Um, The the movie kind of spirals from there into um, kind of a generational battle between grandmother, mother, daughter. Um, Maybe not a literal battle, but maybe more of a psychological one, if you will. Um, The reason I'm bringing it up here is because I can't imagine we're going to look at it on Fresh Cuts um, I, I went ahead and bit the bullet and watched it this weekend, as I am a fan of Sandra O, oh, but I, unfortunately I have to report that the film is just a lot of been there, done that. It's very tropey. Um, it has all the you know trappings of your average supernatural thriller. Um, some people might even go ahead and call this a psychological thriller. I wouldn't really go that far because there actually is a tangible threat in the film. 
Um, it's not necessarily all in one of the characters' heads, but like I said, I'm going to leave it at that. Um, still a well-made film. Good performances. Sandra Oh, um, Hannah Marie Kim as her daughter. Um, all really good performances throughout. Uh, you even get a little bit of a Dermot Mulrooney uh, as a major character, as uh, playing a character named Danny, who basically owns a general store in their area and kind of helps the family out, things like that. He's like a family friend. Um, be prepared for a very slow burn if you go and check this movie out. Um, and you guys know me. Those of you who listen to anything that I do, you know I love slow burns. I love slow burns if they give me a satisfying ending. Does this one give me a satisfying ending? I'm kind of still on the fence on that one. I would probably say go into this with a little bit of discretion. But if you are a fan, like I said, of psychological horror, um, supernatural horror, um, I don't know that this is even really a theatrical recommend. It's nothing that has to be seen in the theater. The cinematography and the filmmaking aren't so stellar that it needs to be experienced in the cinema by any stretch. But um, I think that if you're a fan of supernatural horror, you, you'll find some positives to it. But overall, I was a little underwhelmed. Um, so it, it wouldn't get the strongest recommend from me. But again, like I said, you like you like slow burn supernatural horror. Check out Umma now in theaters, but check it out quick. I can't imagine this is going to be in theaters for long. <laughs> You're like, check it out, but don't check it out. But if you have to, I guess. <laughs> I'm trying to be as generous as possible. You guys know I hate shitting on people's art. As much as I love ranting on a bad movie, I don't like shitting on people's movies. Um, and the movie isn't bad. Like I said, the movie is just a lot of been there, done that. Like if somebody was new to the horror genre and watched this movie and weren't familiar with the tropes, hell, they might love it. They They might think it's a legitimately tense and scary supernatural horror movie but to us seasoned horror fans it's just a lot of been there done that it's just very polished because it is a hollywood production high budget blah 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 but ultimately not something that you need to rush to the theater to see okay then in that case i'll rush over to derek to see what he has up first uh what you got derek uh I got one that uh, I think you guys actually did cover this on Fresh Cuts, and I didn't actually listen to that episode because I was kind of intrigued by this one because I'm actually a fan of the director, and that's uh, Mickey Keaton's new film, Off Season. Yeah. And uh, I won't go too far in the plot because it, it kind of resembles another movie from the 70s that I actually really, really love, mm-hmm. the plot of this one. And, man... Yeah, this movie has great atmosphere to it. I love the setting on an island that this movie takes place on. And, you know, uh, yeah, I dug it a lot. It has a lot of the themes and tones of this type of movie that I like. Mickey Keaton as a director, very interesting, because you could tell he borrows from a lot of things that that he loves in films before, but in a way he kind of makes the stories his own, if that makes sense, because, yeah, like, he has so much different in his career choices, his films are so different. Like pod is not like the same as like darling and carnage park is kind of like a Rob zombie movie, but better. Yeah. Much. <laughs> yeah. But, uh, and then psychopaths is like nothing you've seen really. <laughs> yeah. It's fucking, that movie's trippy as all hell. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, I dug this one a lot. It's more of this. It's, it's good stuff. It's a good watch. I do recommend it. People check it out. Uh, 
Yeah, good, good cast too. Jocelyn Donahue, I always like her whenever I see. And you get a great <laughs> Richard Brake. <laughs> <laughs> He's great. <laughs> but yeah. I sang I sang Richard Brake's praises uh, when we reviewed that film. Uh, but apparently, I was the only one because nobody agreed with me. I mean. Uh, the biggest complaint is that Richard Brake is one note, and ultimately I agree with that. Richard Brake is one note, but that one note is fucking great. Yeah. <laughs> I love I love Richard Brake's over the top craziness when he gets violent and just um, you know is practically spitting up his words. I, I I just love that kind of stuff, and I know if you're not a fan of that, you get sick of it quick. Um, but I have not gotten sick of it, and he was by far the high point for me, <laughs> the Bridge Man. Yeah. yeah, he was. I, I mean, I, I think I like Richard Brake for what he brings. It's just as soon as he appears, it's like, you know, OK, yeah. we're going to get some Richard Brake by the end of this movie. And we do. Yeah, he's he was great when he popped up in The Mandalorian, too, as one of the Empire for the Empire. Oh, awesome. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> oh, so great. Like Rob Zombie in the Star Wars universe. Ooh. That's great. Doomhead. <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh, Zoom had the only part of that movie worth watching. Ugh. <laughs> yeah, that, that is 31. True. Just watch the first five minutes of 31 and then stop. <laughs> That's the best part. That's the best part. <laughs> uh, uh, yeah, and we we did actually cover off. See, that was our, I think, our latest episode, right? It is our newest Honestly. episode. Yes, sir. I mean, I enjoyed it overall. I'm, I'm right there with Derek. I think I liked it more than the other uh, two guys on the show. Um, the ending did leave me a little flat because it, it was one of those things where I saw that ending coming and I really was hoping that Mickey Keating was going to throw a little wrench in the works there and maybe throw an ending in there that would totally surprise me or something. Um, yeah. But no, he gave us the ending that I expected, which is fine. Don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that that's a bad thing. Um, yeah. I mean, you know, if I hear Mickey Keating goes Lovecraftian, I, I'm on board, my friends. I am there in a second. And, yeah, I, we could solidly say off-season is Mickey Keating's attempt at a, a Lovecraftian story. And it, and it works in a lot of ways. I just wish the ending was a little bit more satisfying. That's all. Yeah. It, the movie, I think, you, I was trying not to mention was Messiah of Evil. Uh-huh. I was going to say MOE just to kind of throw some mystery out there for people. I knew what you were talking about. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Which ironically is from the directors of Howard the Duck. How the fuck did that happen? <laughs> <laughs> well, Howard the Duck is almost as scary as Messiah of Evil. <laughs> it is. Unintentional. That was one Unintent of my yeah. favorite movies as a kid. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> I, I, I mean, I liked it, it too. I liked it too, but I was also very young. I mean, because Venom, by the time it came out, you were probably of the age where you saw it and you were like, "What the hell is this?" Where I was like, a, still a little little kid. Yeah, I was in high school when that came out. Yeah, I was already in high school. Yeah, and, and then when I watched it and tried to watch it again, like I'm like, "Wait, so she fucked the duck? What the fuck is going on?" <laughs> yeah, I did try to watch it again in, uh, as an adult, and I think I got halfway through, and I was just like, "Yeah, I got better things to do." <laughs> Like, get your friends over to restart it from the beginning? Oh, yeah, if I hate them, yeah. <laughs> uh, all right. Uh, Nikki, do you, did you bring a list of stuff that you watched? Um, I actually want to talk about a book I'm reading, because I'm pretty sure this book will be turned into a movie. 
It's called, yeah, it's called Tender is the Flesh. And it was actually an Italian novel that was translated into English. And this book, it's pretty crazy. What it's about is a world where there was a virus that affected all the animals. So there's like no meat for people to eat. So they resorted to eating humans. And the way that this is written is unlike anything that I've ever read before. Like in addition to movies, I read a lot. And this book is very captivating. Like I'm 100% certain it will be turned into a film at some point in time. It's a very popular horror novel in the book community right now. Oh, you might have to send me a link to that. I might have to check that out. Yeah, for sure. It's yeah. Um, what is the name yeah, of it again? Sounds... Yeah, it's called uh, "Tender Is the Flesh," and it, it's just a little horror novella. So it wouldn't take too long to read. I'm not quite finished with it, but people are saying the ending, like the way that the words come off the page as you're reading them at the very end, it's very like spine chilling, like how it ends, I suppose. Mm. I'm, I'm captivated by it. Oh, it's like the first, the first couple of words in the first chapter, it's like carcass, cut in half, slaughter. And I'm just like, yes, <laughs> like I'm going to keep, <laughs> you know, um, but no, I, it's very, very good. And <laughs> I, I am big into like, it's not a zombie film. It's definitely about cannibalism, which is not something I I dabble in a lot when it comes to like horror films. But when done in a certain way, I appreciate them. And the way that this book is written is very up my alley in the format of a horror novel. So I would love to see what it would look like yeah, on the big. At first, I, at first I thought you were saying you don't personally dabble in dabble in a, a lot of cannibalism. I was like, <laughs> well, I hope not. <laughs> Like I don't like a lot of cannibal type films. Right, much. right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, I tend only, to like stories only like once that. A, once a month when it comes to the real cannibalism, Mike. That's that's just every now and now. Now and again. I was like, is Nikki in the Army Hammer fan club? She's, she's, sa- she's saving that for the next girl talk segment on oh, party yeah. massacre. Oh yeah, oh, Nikki, if you didn't know, Army Hammer was accused of cannibalism. I guess. Yeah. Oh, among other things, yes. Okay, how like recently or? Yeah, last year I think. Yeah, yeah, last oh. year. Yeah, I was not. I did not hear that story. Yeah, you probably haven't noticed him working much since then because, well, he's probably mm-hmm. canceled at this point. Yeah. What, uh, what was the story there like? Oh, I don't know the exact story. I I heard the the, the basic uh, points. You know, basically exactly what Derek just said that he had been accused of multiple offenses, but one of the most egregious ones was uh, a desire to consume human flesh. So mm. yeah, because he, he was getting <laughs> accused of like abuse against like one of his ex girlfriends or something like that. Which yeah. he was saying it. Yep. Gotcha. Yeah, I, I think that's how the story hit. It started like a like a familiar abuse type story, and then like as more details came in, it's like, wait, what? <laughs> okay. <laughs> 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 but 
But uh, just on that book that you were bringing up, yeah, I like stories like that because I feel like where the world is now, we're kind of in like a transitional period where we're not obviously quite to that point yet where people would have to do that. But we're definitely it almost feels like in a lot of areas we're coming to that crossroads where it's like, are we actually going to try to take measures to preserve things or just let it keep going off the rails till one day that book will be like nonfiction almost. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like, it makes me want to make Nikki watch a certain movie. I'm not going to name that movie because it spoils. I think you know a movie I'm talking about, Michael. Mm. Yes. Yes. I think so, Darren. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, all right. Well, we'll come over to me now. <laughs> so the first one I got is actually a movie that was in the theaters, albeit very briefly. And I think it was like another situation where either two movies came out the same week or one week apart. But by the time we did our episode on Fresh Cuts and this was probably going to be the following week, it, I had already left theaters up here. So there's no way for me to see it the following week. But now that it's kind of hit uh, VOD and stuff, I was able to watch it, and that is The Cursed. So for anyone unfamiliar, it's a period piece werewolf movie. And I got to say, I actually kind of liked it. Like, I I, I was surprised because I hadn't heard a lot about it because I think a lot of people just missed it in the theaters. Either they didn't get screenings or it was out, out of their theater so quick that the window to see it was so small. But I was surprised that, like, how gory it was and not just like you know bad quality cgi gore but it got pretty visceral like limb chopping and like attacks um i will say like the werewolf effects themselves there was some kind of like you know annoying cgi but like everything else about the movie i liked i liked the story i liked the you know the period piece setting i i'm like give or take with period pieces they can be really fun but they can also kind of drag and meander but i i felt this one was a good story uh characters were good i liked where it went and uh by the end of it i was like yeah i wish i would have had a chance to see this in the theater um venom i know you've seen it right you did see it in the theater i did event yeah i i i i uh i, I saw it like on the last day it was playing out here in la just because i was bored yeah not bad. I, I, I'm almost right in step with you. You know, um, I, I'm not a big fan of CGI werewolves in general. Obviously, you know, most of us come from the day of the howling and American werewolf. So we would prefer our uh, practical effect werewolves. But obviously, in this day and age, it's cheaper to do the CG. And sometimes CG can work. I'm not going to say that it was terrible in this movie, but I agree with Mike. It took me out of it a couple of times, you know. Especially yeah. in some of the bigger action scenes, it just kind of, uh, that didn't look so good, you know, blah, blah, blah. But, you know, I tend to forgive that kind of stuff if the movie is really, really great. Um, I'm not going to say this movie was really, really great. It was entertaining. I did enjoy it overall. Yeah, I um, I feel like the CGI was probably as about as good as it could be on the budget of the movie, but that still doesn't excuse it. Like, if you if you know you're going to have to do 100% CGI for your monster it's like do something to kind of like hide it. Like maybe use more shadows or attack in the dark or something that, because what was interesting is like all the non werewolf stuff when it came to gore or blood or even like, um, I don't want to say too much for people who haven't seen it, but there's a bunch of other stuff in the movie that it either looks practical or it looks, you know, 
like a good mix. Um, and it, it's like literally just the werewolf itself that is like, come on, guys, like you didn't do anything to like try to hide just the straight yeah. up computer animation stuff. Um, come on, man. That's where I, I feel like that's where Asian cinema has the advantage because um, Asian cinema has just as much bad CGI as we have here. But they do a lot better job of hiding it. There's two movies that uh, over the last few years that really, really show that off. Monstrum. Yeah, thank you, Derek. Monstrum, absolutely. Example number one, where, you know, they knew that, you know, a full on shot of the monster wasn't going to look impressive. So most of the movie is shot in darkness or at least at night with maybe like torch lighting as opposed to like either natural or artificial lights. So it works. And then the other example is detention. Uh, a movie that we actually reviewed on Fresh Cuts that's based on, on a video game. Um, there's a lantern monster in that one. Same thing. Um, the CG isn't great, but because it's masqueraded in darkness and they utilize um, and, and the monster carries a lantern. So he has his own light source, but it's not a very bright light source. So they, they took advantage of the fact that the monster isn't going to look awesome by, you know, utilizing light and shadow, and it makes it work. So, yeah, American filmmakers, you know, if you're going to make something with a CG monster that you know doesn't look stellar, play with it, you know? Make it dark, uh, you know, play with the lighting a little bit. I mean, yeah, definitely look at Asian cinema, for examples. They know how to work with a budget out there. <laughs> I love Monstrum. Sparkles is my favorite. Oh, I think that was, like, my top five that year, in my top five. I adore that film. It was almost perfect. I think I gave it like a 96. <laughs> so good. <laughs> um, have either Derek and Nikki, uh, have either of you seen uh, The Cursed at all? Not, not yet. I, I've i been, weirdly enough, the Blu-ray cover doesn't even look like a fucking werewolf movie. It looks like a killer plant movie out of nowhere. <laughs> I'm like, what the fuck is going on with this? I saw, I saw a poster for The Cursed that made it look like a vampire movie. Yeah. <laughs> they don't they don't know what they're advertising. <laughs> Is this a new movie that just recently came out? Yes. Cuz so when you said when you said the curse I thought you were talking about the 90s film with Chris oh, and Joshua Jackson. But then yeah. when you went to the deep that's really not CGI. what he's talking about. Yeah. yeah. That does have terrible CGI in it. It's yep. a werewolf film too, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, hey, uh, lycanthropy is a curse, so it's a good title for a werewolf movie. No, my Maya's not in the one that Mike but was no, talking. About. No. Okay, yeah, um, yeah, it should be hidden VOD. So if it, if you're interested, you can find it there. I'm not sure if you're like a werewolf movie person or indifferent or what, but it, it should be available soon. Oh yeah, I I dig some werewolf films. Cool. Oh, yeah. All right, Venom, we'll go back to you. All right. So, um, as many of you know, I, Derek and I also are on one of the other side casts for uh, No More Room in Hell called Creature Comforts, where we like to look at, you know, giant monsters and, and, and all sorts of creature features. So, I've, uh, we recorded an episode a couple of weeks ago. Um, with giant ants, uh, specifically 1977's Empire of the Ants. And it just kind of got me in a mood to watch some giant monster movies. So I decided to pop in one of my favorite terrible giant monster movies. And that is 1976's The Giant Spider Invasion. Oh, holy shit, this movie. Um, <laughs> it's, just, it's basically a comedy. I mean, it is a horror 
horror film, but it's for the most part a comedy. I mean, if you can, if you can go more than five minutes without laughing at either one of the characters in the movie, one of the ridiculous lines of dialogue, one of the over-the-top scenarios, and then once the spiders actually show up, oh my god, some of the most adorable, giant, felt-covered spiders ever. They, they look furry, like I want to sleep on them. They, they, they look like they would make a comfortable bed. But yeah, holy shit. Um, this movie stars uh, Steve Brody, as the lead, Dr. Vance, we got Barbara Hale. Hell, we got Alan Hale, the skipper from Gilligan's Island, plays the sheriff in this movie. And he actually called someone little buddy in the movie. Holy shit, my nerd boner was gigantic when he said that. Yeah, he pulls out a little buddy to somebody in the movie. But anyway, basically, the basic story of the movie is um, there is a meteor, like, um, crash uh, that crashes onto a... Uh, a farmer's property out of that meteorite come these little rocks that look like geodes. But when they crack open, a tarantula crawls out. Uh, the, the only difference is, is that these tarantulas grow as they eat. So the more they eat, the bigger they get until we literally get to the point where the finale of the movie is literally a spider, the size of a fucking house. And <laughs> obviously this is 1976. This is well before CG. Uh, they do not try the superimposition shots that you might see in stuff like Empire of the Ants or Beginning of the End with the giant crickets, you know, where they superimpose real-life uh, insects over human characters on the film. Um, they didn't even have a budget for that, apparently. So, yeah, you're looking at all practical spiders, but they're all big, fuzzy. They literally look like Halloween decorations that you'd get at the Halloween store. <laughs> um, oh, my God. And like I said, just the, the, the absolute terrible characters in this movie, not necessarily their performances, mind you, just the, the terrible characters that the farm owner is married to this beautiful blonde, but then he goes and pays to have sex with this awful-looking prostitute. Like, I, I'm sorry. As a guy, we all know you're supposed to cheat up. Cheat up, never cheat down. What's the point in cheating down? But And, and then paying for it! Holy shit, I'm sorry. <laughs> so, yeah, <laughs> I can't fathom that kind of shit, but whatever. Um, but yeah, like I said, it's a ridiculous movie. If you, if you get a chance to watch it, it's probably available like on Tubi or YouTube or something. Um, I can't imagine anybody actually holds the licensing rights to this piece of crap, but I own it on Blu-ray. Oh, there's a fucking Blu-ray. Holy shit. <laughs> but yeah, uh, if you get a chance to watch it and you're just looking for a good time, roll up a joint, uh, have some fun with the giant spider invasion. Cause that's about the only way you're really going to get any enjoyment out of this. It literally has a 3 out of 10 on IMDb, so that kind of gives you an idea of what you're looking at. And if I haven't been able to, you know, um, kind of verbally uh, give you an example of the crapulence that you're about to jump into with this movie, then, you know, I just haven't done my job. But, yeah, um, if you're a fan of mystery science theater type films, then this would get a high recommend, like an absolute high recommend. If you're the kind of person that you've got a circle of friends that likes to get together and watch bad movies, my friends, you could do a lot worse than the giant spider invasion. <laughs> ten, 10 out of 10. <laughs> 10 out of 10 from Derek. <laughs> 11 I out of sold 10. it. <laughs> 11 out of 10 for the spider design. Exactly. <laughs> 
I really want one of those spiders. I, I, I literally, I would want one as a bed. Like there was one in the movie that was literally the perfect size of a bed for like two people. Ah, oh. Venom. Did you know that the director <laughs> actually did a musical, like live version of the giant spider invasion? Really, Bill Rabane did a fucking musical of this. Yes, and you in wow. the. And then the Blu-ray release that I have comes with the soundtrack to the music. Oh, shit. Well, there goes $20 more. I'm going to have to go buy it. <laughs> I'm going to assume with the silence that Mike and Nikki have not experienced the awesomeness that is the giant spider invasion. <laughs> no, but from your description, I think you sold it. <laughs> yeah, it at least sounds exactly like the type of movie you would expect with that title. So, I was gonna... oh yeah, oh the, yeah, that title definitely does not write a check the movie can't cash. You know <laughs> exactly what you're in for, and just just when you hear that spiders come out of comet, you're like, okay, I'm... <laughs> yeah. Like I said, if you're a fan of more realistic spider invasion movies, I would say go with Kingdom of the Spiders, um, starring, uh, of course, the spectacular Oscar-winning William Shatner. I'm sorry, Oscar-winning in my own mind. In my mind, he's won like four Oscars, but that's... Seven, seven in mine. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> For Rafa Khan. So, yeah, so if you're more into, like, the realistic tarantulas, like, you know, marauding a city, Kingdom of the Spiders is the way to go. If you're into the most adorable, fuzzy, giant spiders not really doing much of anything to people, but somehow they fall over and die, the giant spider invasion is for you. <laughs> Sweet. I don't even All know right. how to top that. Well... Now's your chance to try. Uh, I watched a new movie. Wow, this is me bringing new movies to the table. This is, <laughs> this is one that Mike talked about last week, and I watched the movie Fresh. Ah. Because I thought it was going to be about the biopic about how you change the name from just the movies to Fresh Cuts. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, But, uh... Yeah, uh, Mike explained what this movie was sort of about. It's kind of, you know, it has like a, the thing about the the horrors of modern day, and that's what's going on with the plot of it, with the setup of the movie. And man, I don't want to really spoil this movie because I kind of dug it. The Winter Soldier fucking killed it as that dude. <laughs> <laughs> he was great. I love that actor. He was great in the movie. <laughs> Uh, but, uh, yeah, it, it does deal with a few, actually, ironically enough, I think we mentioned that it, it dwells into something that Nikki was talking about with a certain novel she was reading. Oh, so, so I don't want to, yeah, I don't really want to spoil it. Yeah. I hate that the, po that the poster is what it is. Cause the poster literally gives away everything that the movie is about. And that's really upsetting. I mean, because yeah. you guys know I don't watch trailers because I'm pissed off when trailers give away too much of a movie. But then the poster fucking gives away what the movie is basically about. And that's upsetting. So, yeah. Well, Good movie, though. Still recommend it. Yeah. I prefer to go in blind when you oh, watch yeah. your movies before, like, reading what they're about or think. Yeah. I don't read synopses. I don't watch trailers. I don't watch reviews until after I see the movie. I'm, I'm a horror movie fan through and through. If you tell me it's a horror movie, I'm going to go see it. I don't need to see a trailer. I don't need to know what it's about. I just want to watch yep. it. 
of hell. I think I, right I think that hell. I think this movie would actually benefit if people didn't even know it was a fucking horror movie. Yes, because it starts yes. out as like a romantic movie in the beginning. You know? Oh, literally for the whole first act, you're you're like, what the hell am, is this a horror movie? What am I watching? Yeah, <laughs> it seems to be getting happens. pretty good praise too across the yep. board. Like most people I've seen talk about it say it's good. I really liked it too. Um, and it, yeah, I definitely agree. The way it starts out, you you get to spend a, quite a bit of time with the characters before things go sideways and when it does go sideways it keeps building and that third act is pretty good like it it gets pretty crazy so i I definitely recommend it it's it's hulu right that's the service cool yeah i if i would have probably suggested for fresh cuts if it didn't happen to hit like right when some movies in the theater hit so that's i think probably what kept us from doing it Exactly. It should have been done. It's called Fresh. Yeah, yeah. I recommend. Check it out. Uh, okay, back to Nikki if you got something else. Yeah, I watched a movie recently, and it was actually on your guys's. Uh, I believe it was on your top ten list, Mike. Uh, but I believe, Venom, you liked it a lot as well. Derek, I don't know if you've seen it. It's called... My heart can't beat unless you tell it to. Uh, and oh, yeah. I, I loved it so much. Oh, my gosh. It was so good. Um, it's uh, it's about this brother and this sister, and they, they're taking care of their younger brother. But what's so interesting about this film is that I think it can relate to people in many different ways. It definitely spoke to me because I really felt for the brother and sister taking care of the younger brother, because it was almost like it was out of their hands with what was happening to him. And that's actually like a very similar situation that um, has happened in my life as well. My mom actually lives in a, a nursing home. So it really hit home watching it. And it's not like horror in the sense of like certain horror films that you would think about just by hearing the word horror. Um, it's a very slow film, but it unravels in this very unique way. And when you get to the end, it's just like, oh my gosh, like it, it really does make you feel something emotionally when you're watching it. And um, I was just grateful that that was on your 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 list because I am always looking for films that have a sense of being able to look for certain metaphors. And um, I love to analyze film, and this was one that I could do that with. And I, yeah, I really loved it. Yeah, I, I I like those type of movies too, where it the horror. I guess you could say the horror element, you know, without just straight up saying. Well, I don't know if we are if we already said exactly what's going on, we but have. just just the fact of the mm-hmm. siblings taking care of the younger brother, um, that kind of situation is really makes it to where it's inconsequential to what exactly is going on with the brother that puts it in the horror genre. But even if that wasn't going on, just the kind of family dynamic, it kind of remind. I think mm-hmm. I said at the time, it it reminded me a little bit of the dark and the wicked, the setup of that, where they came home to take care 
of an alien parent and really horror about like the human condition where it's like the, mm-hmm. for all we know, the brother could have just been sick with some type of terminal disease that they had no control over. And it would have been like a very similar movie, obviously because he was what he was. We're going to get, you know, eventually a scene or two of some gore, you know, something that puts it firmly into the horror genre. But really it's the story itself should be relatable to people regardless if they're actual horror fans or not. And that's what I thought made it so uh, interesting of a movie. What really struck me about this movie is um, aside from just the emotional baggage of this film, I mean, the emotional punch, the multiple emotional punches you get throughout the film is the fact that the kid, the younger brother, who's the one who's actually suffering from the mysterious malady here in the film isn't the villain of the film. You could make the argument that it's the brother (laughs) and the sister who are the villains because they're the ones who are doing all the nefarious things in this film. It's not the little brother. Now, obviously, they're doing it all out of love. So, you know, obviously, you kind of have to give them a little bit of uh, leeway for that. But, you know, at the same time, you know, the fact that these two are trying so hard to care for their younger brother, but ultimately they are the villains of this film just really says a lot and just yeah this movie really struck me um just to let you know it was my number 11 of the year it just so barely missed my top 10 and that was one of my end of the year watches like that was one that i had to catch up on at the end of the year and you know anybody who listens to fresh cuts regularly knows i love my dramatic horror i love horror with emotion with heart and um this movie has it in spades so yeah if you haven't seen it it's a long title a long weird title to have to say all out at once but man <laughs> um if you've got a shutter subscription it's shutter right uh it's also on tubi as well okay there you go so if that you don't have shutter, it's on tubi for free um it, it is a high recommend from me definitely one of the best films of 2021 yeah, yeah actually, i think I, think uh, I was just going to say at the time, I was pre- I th- I'm was i pretty sure it was Shutter at the time, but if it's on Tubi now, yeah, that opens it up to even more people. Because yep. uh, I think I'm the first one to actually brought it up because I actually reviewed it on No More Room in Hell. I think it was the episode Debbie guested on. And everyone was like, oh, that sounds like a Giallo. Is that a Giallo movie? <laughs> I couldn't really spoil the movie, though. You know, that's the thing that sucks. Oh no, no, yeah, this the, you, you can't spoil this one. You know, we're we're trying really hard not to say you know, some people might yeah, have figured it you, out, but we're trying really hard not to say it because it's a great reveal. It really is. So Yeah, it's one you've got to it, it's one of those ones you should go in blind. <laughs> I mean we, oh, we yeah. talked about the synopsis the synopsis and whatnot, but yeah, just just watch it. <laughs> yeah, don't watch a trailer. Just jump right into it. It's awesome. Yes. <laughs> yep. All right. So back to me. Um, I will bring up something I watched on Shutter recently, and it's something that dropped, I think, a week or two ago, and that would be The Seed. So basic setup for this is a group of girls, I, I believe they take like a, a friend vacation, I guess you would call it, to like a cabin in the woods, and uh, what they think is a meteor hits, and it turns out to be some type of alien life form as it turns out to and... be spiders <laughs> 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 nope not this time uh space creature and kind of hijinks ensue it's it's kind of like a i would say it's a horror comedy 
Um, it's it's really it's one of those movies where it's about ten to fifteen minutes in when you get the setup, you kind of are assuming okay this is the type of movie I'm going to get and that's exactly what it is, and uh, I had a good time with that. I think it's it's pretty funny. It's self aware. It it knows it's like not coming along to reinvent the wheel in this in this type of genre or subgenre I should say, and uh, it just kind of fully embraces. Uh, it, I, I thought I did think it was funny and some of the gore is really good and, uh, I think it's worth people's time. I, I think there's a good chance no one's seen it just because it's, it's still relatively what, what, new. What's it called? Uh, The Seed. Oh, I didn't watch it yet. No, I want to, I was intrigued. Yeah, it's, uh, it seems like a now on Shutter. It's almost like they wait for like two or three things to like drop at once. So it was with the, the group of stuff that dropped like. I think a couple of weeks ago. Um, well, yeah, they drop stuff every week on shutter between the series and the films. Yeah. Uh, yeah. On the featured, the featured front page, I guess mm-hmm. son has like three or four new things at the front of it. But yeah. Um, yeah, I, I think maybe I was watching it because we hadn't picked something for fresh cuts. So I was trying to like, sometimes I'll try to pre, not, I don't know if pre screens the right word, but I'll try to watch stuff in anticipation of knowing we have to pick something. So if like if I happen to watch something before we make a decision and I really, really like it, then I'm going to be like, yeah, I'm going to try to push this as our next pick. So, so it's um, not like, so it's not like uh, theme warriors where you just pick movies you've never seen before. <laughs> <laughs> nope. Not like that. Um, <laughs> where I usually end up disappointing the entire cast with my picks. <laughs> oh. <laughs> um, but yeah, so I, I had anybody seen the seed yet by chance? No, like I said, it I doesn't didn't. sound like it. I was going to watch it Friday, but then I ended up watching perfect blue. So twice. Uh, well, I watched it again Saturday. <laughs> <laughs> um, all right then. Well, That'll conclude the talk on the seed then, since no one else had seen it. And I don't want to say too much because it's still pretty relatively new as well. But I, yeah, I guess I'll just once again say I, I recommend checking it out on Shutter. So uh, I guess that's back to Venom for our last round of what we watched. So what do you got, Venom? All right. Well, uh, it looks like my old my movies are just getting older and older as we go. Unfortunately, I haven't had as much time to watch. Uh, you know, 2022 stuff as much as I uh, would like lately because of the new job. But I did throw in an old favorite recently uh, on the last episode in the what we've been watching segment. I brought up my favorite Vincent Price performance in The Last Man on Earth. I figured today I would bring in my second favorite Vincent Price performance. And um, we, we here we are talking about 1959's The House on Haunted Hill. Um, ah, this movie. I, I love this movie. I actually saw this movie in theaters the first time. Not in 1959, of course. I'm not that fucking old. But I did see it in the 80s in a theater and had an absolute blast with it. Um, obviously, to today's audiences, it's going to be the scariest thing out there. It's really more of like a, a, a more, more like a Halloween haunt uh, as far as like, you know, just going through this supposedly haunted house and hearing all the backstory about it and everything. And of course, Vincent Price absolutely chewing the scenery throughout as Frederick Lauren hosting a party where he invites five people to spend the night at the house on Haunted Hill. If they are successful, he will give them each $10,000 at the end of the night, which really doesn't sound like a lot of money today. But don't forget, 
we are talking about 1959, so that's a lot more money to them. Yeah. And of course, the uh, the uh, the movie kind of spirals from there into its you know haunted house tropes and wackiness and things like that. But um, we we end up getting a cool little murder plot. You know, it almost turns into a little bit of a murder mystery in the uh, near the end of the or like. I'd say halfway through the movie or so, uh, we it suddenly turns into a little bit of a murder mystery. Um, and then it just kind of goes from there to, you know, what most people, I think, will find as a satisfying ending, even though you could kind of make the argument that the uh, the ghoul of the movie doesn't really get his comeuppance. But someone in the movie does get their comeuppance, so at least there's something there. But yeah. Uh, absolute, you know, midnight, Saturday midnight classic, you know, beautiful black and white um, of course, it's William Castle. So anybody who got to see this in theaters when it first came out got to experience Emerjo, which was, of course, all the cool um, extra stuff that they did within the theater during the showing. They would have things like wind blowing, you know, for outdoor scenes. They would have a plastic skeleton fly over the audience on a string, you know, when whenever we would see the skeleton in the uh, in the movie, they would have rope hanging from the ceiling like nooses. Um, anybody who's seen House on Haunted Hill knows the symbolism of the rope throughout the movie. And uh, so they had like little nooses and things like that, all, all, all sorts of cool little like, you know, real life stuff going on in the theater. So if you were lucky enough to see it when it was first run, um, it had to be an absolute experience. Obviously, now today, most people are going to look at it as just kind of a fun, silly little throwback, uh, you know, to a bygone era. But I love this film. I genuinely love it. I, I will fully admit that I love it more as a comedy uh, I tend to laugh at uh, Pritchard's character, um, the guy whose brother was killed in the house the last time people gathered in this house. Uh, I forgot that what the guy's name was. Elijah Cook Jr. Yes, Elijah Cook Jr. playing Watson Pritchard. Yes. Oh, uh, if it wasn't for Vincent Price, he would be the high point of this movie. Just so entertaining. Um, just the way that everybody kind of treats him like he's just like some shitty little character, even though his brother was the one that died in the house. No one shows him any empathy whatsoever throughout. Um, but like I said, yeah, I just look at this movie as just a fun little dark comedy. And if you go into it, if you've never seen it before and you go into it with that kind of uh, attitude that you're just going to get like a cool, fun, dark comedy uh, that that turns into a murder mystery halfway through the film. I think you'll enjoy it. I would imagine most people who've been in the genre as long as we have has probably at some point seen this film, the Mystery Science Theater version, the Rift Tracks version, the colorized version. There are so many versions of this movie out there. So, But if you have not, um, I, would rec- I highly recommend it. It's a fun little movie. Like I said, I mean, what can I say? It's Vincent Price and William Castle together. To you know, masters of cinematic horror, anyway. So yeah, um, I'm, I'm going to assume that d- at the very least, Derek has seen it. I've, I've seen it. it. Okay. I've seen it. <laughs> and I'm going to assume that uncool Mike has not. He's like, no, I didn't see that. Didn't they have Jeffy Rush in it? <laughs> <laughs> the yeah, he'd be. Oh, oh no. <laughs> <laughs> you would be correct, though. Have not. Yeah, I have not seen fun though. <laughs> oh, Nikki, yeah. you get a pass. You, you, <laughs> yeah, I haven't seen that one, but I know there's a more modern one um, that yeah, I have but, seen. Yeah, and the remake's not bad. I mean, it's not a great movie. I'm not going to say it's a good movie, 
but yeah. it has it, it has its quality. Um, I think uh, Matthew Lillard, I, I thought, did a really good job in that movie. Um, wait, am I thinking of the right movie? Shit. Thirteen Ghosts. I'm thinking, ghost. of, 13, 13 I'm thinking ghost. of Thirteen Ghosts. I'm so sorry. Um, uh, um, House on a Haunted Hill. That was the one that. Oh, uh, Allie Larder. Rush. Yes, Allie Larder. Allie yes. Larder. Yes. Now, okay. Yeah. Hey Diggs. Mean, yeah, and Tay Diggs. You are correct. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I do remember liking that movie. Obviously, I don't like it nearly as much as the original, but it's a very different movie too. I mean, it, it yeah. is a remake in name, but honestly, in in execution, it's not really a remake. It's a whole different movie, much more violent, much more nefarious um, than the original, um, but still very fun. Um, I, I'd, I'd recommend both. Check them out. Yeah, I actually don't mind some of those dark castle remakes of those movies. Like, yeah, I like no. House, of, House of Wax is pretty fun too house of wax is very underrated i know with paris hilton in it and considering who she was at the time when the movie came out the movie got a lot of hate but if you can get past the fact that she's in it um I, it, there's a lot to enjoy in that movie it's not a she great the, movie but it's fun she has the best death scene in that movie ever yes and and yeah. deservedly so yeah <laughs> um yeah the original was directed by William Castle. Is that who oh, yeah. it was? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Emerjo. Yeah, man. I want to say I probably have actually seen it. It's just because I do like William Castle. Like I, I think his stuff is really good. Kind of like the B movie Hitchcock almost. Um, exactly. And I had to have seen it through the years. I, I'm yeah, sure it's I one have. Of those movies that. Whenever you buy one of those 50 horror classics for 10 bucks on a DVD, House on Haunted Hill is almost always on it. Yeah. You're almost always going to get Night of the Living Dead, <laughs> Dementia 13, House yeah, on Haunted yeah. Hill, you know? And um, the, the poster for it, like the classic poster, is pretty recognizable when you see it, too. Oh, mm-hmm. I love that poster. I have it hanging. Actually, it's hanging on my right, on the right of where I'm standing right now. <laughs> nice. Nice. <laughs> Um, all right, Derek, what do you got up for the last one? Well, I, I, I stopped the new movies. I was on a roll there. <laughs> uh, I checked out the 4K Madman from 1981. Ooh. Yeah. Love it. Def recommend. <laughs> Madman, yeah. Not I, Madman, but Madman. I actually do like I Madman too. Yeah, I don't mind it. I don't mind I Madman either, but Madman is great. That's a classic. Yeah. It ends with the greatest song ever. Beware of the Madman Mars. <laughs> Nikki, have you seen Madman? I have not. I have seen the so the newer one. With yeah. Charlize Theron. Yeah. I haven't seen the older ones though. Um my dad's dad would watch them all the time, so I would see them in passing, but I never actually, I don't remember, like, sitting down watching them with him. Yeah. Good stuff. Great stuff. Uh, and it's also available on Shutter if you have a Shutter subscription. Oh, yeah. Sweet. Uh, all right, Nikki, you got anything up for the last round? Yeah. My sister Lacey will always recommend <laughs> these to me. And don't tell she, me it's free. Def- <laughs> no. <laughs> She's well, like, she made me watch that. Scream again. Um, no, she's like on this kick where she's just looking for hidden gems to watch or like movies that are a little older. 
And mm-hmm. she she recommended this one called The Forgotten One. It's from 1989, and it stars Terry O'Quinn, who plays uh, John Locke in the Lost series. Uh-huh. Um, it, it's definitely more of a thriller. It, it's I wouldn't call it a horror at all. Um, and it definitely has, it's more of a romance as well. But it's about this man who moves into this house. He's a writer and he develops a crush on this woman that lives across the street. But then he comes to realize that his house is actually haunted by the spirit of a very beautiful woman. And I was actually very impressed with where the story went. And it, it drew me in. It was captivating and I, I wasn't anticipating liking it as much as I thought. Nice. Yeah, no, I, I, I do remember that one. Um, written and directed by Philip Badger, who also gave us uh, Slipstream and Retroactive. Um, right. I don't remember as much about the forgotten one, but I do remember enjoying it. I remember because I remember Terry O'Quinn. He's very, very recognizable. Um, but I remember so little about the movie, but I do remember really enjoying it. So yeah, I, I'm gonna agree uh, by default. <laughs> I'll go watch yeah, it. Yeah, it was it was fun. It was fun. Nice. Where'd you watch that at, by the way? Hmm. Where'd you watch that? Is it streaming? Oh. Is it available? Um, it might be on Tubi. I, I do watch a lot of movies off of there. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> you cheapskates. <laughs> For anyone who doesn't know, I have a major, major bias to commercials. I will not watch a movie if it's on a streaming service where they where I have to watch ads. I, I would rather pay I, the five to ten bucks and rent it. Um, that's just me. You know, I, I know a lot of people. It doesn't bother them. And that's fine. I mean, hey, save the money where you can. But yeah. I can't do commercials. It takes me out of the movie. I, I just hate it. <laughs> I'm not a fan of the ads either. <laughs> I get used to it after a while. It's usually when I just go pee or something. <laughs> <laughs> I don't have to pee five times in a two-hour movie, though. <laughs> hey, all I drink is water, Venom. Don't judge. Oh, okay. Well, then, I guess if you're drinking a lot, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Tubi's at least, like, not one of the worst offenders of ads I think it's like what? No, that's true. Two, three times in a ninety-minute movie, where some services, it's like it seems like every fifteen minutes. Oh, YouTube the f- is worse. YouTube, watch a feature on YouTube. Holy shit! You're gonna have about a half hour of commercial. IMDb TV. Oh yep. my god! Another one that's awful. God damn. <laughs> uh, yeah, I like Tubi is good when I'm working at home because I usually like to throw on stuff that I've already seen, so I'll. I can kind of just have it going, and that way it's like I don't even really re- see when the ads are coming on anyway because I'm usually half busy with work mm-hmm. as it is, and Tubi's library is just so massive. It's it's ridiculous You're how big it is. You're going down a rabbit hole. Mm-hmm. Yeah. A lot on there. <laughs> yeah, I'm – like I don't know how they – you know, who or how they figure out their programming, but there's a lot of like deep cuts on there that I'm just like, I'm just surprised at any like who's working at Tubi that would even think to get some of these hell, movies. Hell, Bo Ranzel created a whole sideshow where he just looks at found footage movies on Tubi. 
<laughs> yeah, I've got to I've got to think that they have some type of distribution deal where like they buy up like collections at a time or the rights to air them because I'm like I don't know how someone would like just singularly or like grab these individual movies just even knowing them unless unless you just hired like some of like the most in-depth like deep cut knowing or knowledgeable people about movies otherwise because uh, like they I think you know they they have like a full moon pictures category so obviously you know they probably packaged that somehow yeah so you're like, okay, okay for that shitty full moon streaming service <laughs> I almost bought that <laughs> but, hey you know that'd be actually a very fun top ten to do top ten movies on Tubi. <laughs> the uh that kino cult app they're still like making updates to it too because i threw it on the other day and now they actually have like their own live streaming channel kind of like shutter does and but what they actually do is they put out like the schedule of like what's going to be airing all day so you'll have you'll open the app and whatever's currently going to streaming but then you'll see right below it's like okay you know at various times of day we're going to be showing this so that's pretty cool. But the Kino Cole app, they have a lot of good stuff on there. Now, they're small, so their library doesn't grow a ton. But they do add new stuff, and it's all interesting-looking things. Like, it, it's pretty stuff. <laughs> yeah, I think Metropolis <laughs> is on there, which I want to check out. Um, you never seen Metropolis? What's wrong with you? Well, I, I've seen it, but not recently. I mean, I saw it when I was young, but... It's why aren't so you long. watching it? What's wrong? No, no, yeah, you know, know why Michael's doing all that classic. You know what Michael's yeah. doing? He's like, chicken nuggets are like my family. <laughs> 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 uh, all right. Well, for my last one, I'm kind of I'm going to uh, horror adjacent or the cousin of horror because the documentary In Search of Tomorrow is uh, out, and uh, if it's from the makers of what what was it called? Uh, Into the Darkness, Part Seven and Seven. In search, of yeah. Darkness. There's two of those, and what they're both like? What a few hours each, four uh, hours. The third one, third one's on the way. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. And are all, all three? Because I've seen the first one, but are all three 80s specific, or do they yes. open it up? Yes. First three, yeah. I mean, the third one's not out yet. They just finished production on it. Uh, that was the one that I applied for a job for last year. I don't know if you remember. Yeah, I think you mentioned yeah. it. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, yeah, they just wrapped production on the third one. Um, so that should be out sometime either later this year or early next year. And is yeah, it, yeah. Do they just have to go movies. to, like, deeper cuts or they start covering other aspects? Or how does it – Just it different work? movies. Yeah, they just okay. do – like, you know. I mean, it's not like there's a, a, a small number of good 80s horror movies. <laughs> Well, you yeah, yeah. Do uh, three five-hour documentaries. <laughs> yeah, that's true. It's okay. just they they cover because of the style of the documentary. They cover so much in each one. Exactly, it's yeah. like number but, number one, Rawhead Rex. Let's go. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, in Search of Tomorrow is like the sci-fi version, and there is crossover though because you know they'll bring up stuff like Alien, um, or the Thing, just because technically they're sci-fi horror. But I think I was talking to Venom. Uh, in the chat and you know uh, one of the things I'm I'm liking about this is you know with something like In Search of Darkness it's like uh, obviously I enjoy watching it but I've seen most of what they're talking about but In Search of Tomorrow when it comes to sci-fi 
Um, I've seen like obviously the more mainstream stuff they're talking about, but once they start getting into the deeper cuts, like it, it, I, I've started to make a list of things to watch because I do really like sci-fi as well. I I think next to horror, and I think in some ways sci-fi even goes even further, but they explore like the, the, the subtext and you know metaphors for society, especially future society. I think a lot of times in sci-fi they use the the tech or the space alien stuff as kind of like the window dressing to bring people in, but they're dealing with like a lot of the same human condition and like future society type questions that we have now. I think it, it, it does a lot of similar things to horror, just, you know, obviously presented in more science fiction ways, but I, I enjoy it very much so as well. So I've been kind of compiling a list from watching the documentary. Derek, I I'll ask you, cause you might be the one, out of all this, have you have you seen Saturn Three with Harvey Keitel? When it's dubbed, like, when they dubbed him, <laughs> yeah, that, that's what it looked like in the in the documentary they're showing. It. Yeah, yeah, they dubbed him over and that. Yeah, and Kurt Douglas, all seventy five years old, and was like, "Cast her, Fawcett as my lover." Yeah, it lo- it looks pretty wild. So I'm gonna try to track that one down. But uh, yeah, I don't know if there's gonna be a part two because this one is five hours long. So. I I'm about an hour and a half into it. I kind of want to watch it in a few sittings because with a five hour doc, my biggest fear was like, you know, I'll get two and a half, three hours in and I'll just start. My eyes will start glazing over. I'll get distracted because five hours is a lot of information, a lot of movies to go over. So if they don't do like an hour or so at a time, if they don't mention life force and it's, it's a no go. <laughs> Life Force, Galaxy of Terror. Hopefully, comes up in that one. <laughs> uh, um, so yeah, I would say you know if you were fans of Search Darkness one and two, and you also like sci-fi, definitely check this one out. Um, the only other thing I had written down, and it's not technically horror; it's just more sad, I guess, is the Cosby doc. <laughs> we need to talk about I, Cosby. I, I watched that. And, uh, oh man, it's. <laughs> It's a it's a rough watch because because of the figure that Cosby was before everything came out, you understand like why people have such a hard time like dealing with like coming to grips with it and it's 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 a struggle because they get into like Cosby's like early, early career, like back in the like the mid to late sixties, and there was like a lot of stuff that he did not, I mean not the bad stuff. I just meant like career wise that I had no idea, like the shows he starred in before you know, because of my age, I pretty much started knowing him at like the Cosby show years and maybe like his late eighties Ghost stand-up. Dad. Ghost Dad, yeah, Ghost Dad, uh, like Fat Albert. Um the kind of that era Jell-O. forward, but like Yep, J L L O Jello. <laughs> um But I didn't know like his show where he like he played like almost like a James Bond type spy in a show. Oh yeah, I spy. I spy, yeah. I I had no idea about that, and um, just his older stuff. So, yeah, it's rough. It's only four parts, so it's not. It doesn't take a ton of time to watch. But I, I would I would recommend it. I guess. I mean, it's I, it's kind of this weird place with like true. I guess you would call it true crime. I guess it's it's kind of rough because it's like you're recommending it, but it's like. I'm not gleefully recommending like, hey, go watch uh, the uh, what a bad things Cosby was doing his whole career. But uh, if, if just the figure himself 
kind of intrigues you in the whole situation around it, how he could put out such like, you know, a positive uh, persona to the public when he was actually doing the stuff behind the scenes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's, it's worth seeing. And just, I think it's worth seeing the people that really held him up as a hero it, until the stuff came out and like how they do, cause uh, they interview a lot of the people that were in or around the situation. And I, I kind of feel for them too. just, you know, it, it, it must be hard for someone you really see as a hero to be exposed for doing that kind of stuff. And that was the end of the Cosby cast, everybody. <laughs> yeah. Um, so right now it's on Hulu, but I believe you have to have the Showtime add-on. That's the only issue. Uh, um, oh, so it's on some Showtime. Stuff, yeah, yeah or if you, have, if, if you have Showtime itself, I think you can just watch it straight through Showtime. But yep. it's mm-hmm. otherwise, it's on Hulu. Okay. So, yeah, that's going to wrap up the what we watched or also what we read. Nikki, thanks for bringing up a book. Because, yeah, we are, we are open to, like, anything, really. It's some, sometimes I, we even bring up video games. when it, Ironically, when it plays, the so. ironically the other thing I was going to bring up was I listened to the new Body Count album. Oh, yeah? How was it? Nice. <laughs> it's pretty great. If you like Body Count, you like Body Count. He does a new version of Colors, which is fucking amazing. Yeah, is that so? Yeah. I'm going to have to check that out. When did it drop? Is it 2022 that it dropped? It was last year. You know, last year, I think. Yeah, that was... Was that the one with the horror video? They did a video that was like a slasher video with, like, Ice Cube killing people? I think so. Or is that an older song? I I just remember it because it's, like, not safe for work. Like, you can't watch it on YouTube. It's, it's like, ultra gory and shit. (laughs) Yeah, he has a few of those, actually. Nice. Like, I, I and they, they covered a Slayer song, too. Which yeah, Rain and Blood, mad, yeah. Mad respect for that. Yeah, on, the, yeah. on this one, and on this one, they covered Ace of Spades. Nice! Oh, <laughs> awesome. I, I did see a clip, I think it was from last year. I don't know if, if it happened last year or just a clip uploaded last year where Body Count was doing a co- uh, concert and Ice-T's like, daughter came out on the stage and was like dancing. <laughs> And she's that like, girl looks young. Like, like him. I guess she does. <laughs> she she <laughs> has all his features. Um, but okay, we're done with uh, that segment of the show. Uh, moving along, I I don't really have much news. Like I said before, we started recording. I I was looking around, nothing really of note. Uh, <laughs> what I did find, the Scream Six script is done. I mean, I don't really know. I, I didn't know when that really became stuff horror websites would post. Like, hey, they're done with the script. Okay, so what? I mean, we already had a release date, so which is next year, March 2020. I'm just waiting for them to announce Robert England. Didn't they? <laughs> <laughs> um, that, they got that done quickly, too. Yeah, it was... Which is not a good sign. Well, that's the thing. It's like, were they pushed to hurry up and get something out because of the success of Scream? This will be our. They're like, this will be our Scream Two, guys. <laughs> Nikki, you saw Scream Five, correct? Yeah, I went and seen it with Dan and Lacey in the theater. Did you have to like calm them down every five minutes? Like, come on, guys. <laughs> no, relax. they are. They are. 
surprisingly, while they are watching Scream, they are so immersed in it because, you know, they're so passionate about it. it. You know, the love radiates from their heart while they're doing that. But, like, every so often you would just see Lacey look over at Dan. They would share a moment while they were watching it. And um, I I wanted to be there because to be in the presence of two people who love a film that much I definitely don't love it as much as they do but it was fun to watch it with them I, I, I'm just picturing Nikki blaring in the studio You Are Not Alone by Michael Jackson You Are Not Alone <laughs> We Both Love Scream oh, yeah. The, the well, world around know, us fell apart the, it, It's a franchise that has characters that people you know they grow very attached to and um definitely hits home with a lot of people who are a big fan of the franchise for sure yeah yeah that's true like i i think we gave it venom what would you say like we were like firm on it but fair i mean none of us the the thing about the scream franchise is that none of us on fresh cuts are like like grew up with it if you will like mike is the only 90s kid on the show um and even he didn't really necessarily you know grow up on it like he admitted liking and i same with me i like the first scream but what you got to realize is Scream was made for a very specific audience. I was already th- almost 30 years old when the first Scream came out. Yeah, yes, I'm that old. I'm fucking old. But so so I like the movie. I recognize what it did for cinematic horror. Um, you know, it brought a whole new generation of fans into this into the genre. So I will always give it its props and its kudos. And I do enjoy the film even. It's not something I watch that often cuz like I said it's not. It doesn't really speak to me directly. But it's still a great film. As far as uh, 2022, I mean, I I think my review was basically, you know, it's Scream 1.5, 1.6, 1.7, 1.8. It's like they're very formulaic. If you like the formula, then the movies are going to work for you. And there's nothing wrong with that. Um, I'm a diehard Friday the 13th fan. There is no more formulaic film out there than a Friday the 13th movie. Get naked, die. You know, I mean, what else is there? So go to um, space. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, there you go. <laughs> so, um, go to New York. <laughs> so, like, I have no problem with people who love the Scream franchise. I have no problem with people who say the first Scream movie is their favorite horror film of all time. You know, because, like I said, it definitely speaks to a certain generation. Um, and I and I do respect everything that the franchise has done. It's just for me, 2022 just felt like every other Scream film, you know, another sloppy killer, you know, literally one of the sloppiest, clumsiest cinematic killers ever. Yet somehow, you know, they they keep making a resurgence every five or so years. Um, you know, I, I don't know. It's just I guess I'm a little old. I, I'll be the first one to admit it. I'm I'm crotchety. And, you know, uh, Scream is just not for me. Uh, you know, uh, so, you know, I, I have all the respect in the world for you if you love it. But, yeah, it's just not my franchise. But I'll yeah. give it its props. I'll absolutely give it its props. Yeah, I was I was 16 when it, when it released. So I, I would say, like, age-wise, I was the perfect age. I think the difference, though, is if you were a 16-year-old and you hadn't seen a bunch of slashers at that point, then I can understand why Scream was, like, mind-blowing at the time. Because I, I did like it when it came out. Like, when I saw it in the theater, I was like, holy shit, this opening's like, one of the best openings in, in, like, recent memory or just period. 
And then the rest of the movie happened, and I was like, okay, this is good. Like, I like it, but I didn't leave the theater thinking, like, oh, my God, this is the best slasher I've ever seen. Whereas maybe people in my peer group at the time that hadn't, you know, been renting every single slasher they could get their hands on previously, you know, up to that point might have thought different because this was something – this might have opened doors for them where, to me, it was just, like, the next slasher, you know. Mm -hmm. Um, But I've always really liked the first one. Like, I, I, I don't try to say anything negative because I really, really, I think the first one is really, really good franchise overall has ups and downs to it. And this, this new one, I, 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 I'm along the lines of venom. It's like, if you, if you like the screen movies, there's probably no reason why you wouldn't like this new one. And I liked it well enough. I just obviously is not as high on it as some people. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I I mean, it's one of the more brutal screen movies. Some of yeah. the kills in the new one were very brutal. Yes, yeah. they were. Yeah, they and, were. Uh, I I remember when I first watched the very first Scream with my sister. It My mom went and rented the movie the day it came out. And we got like these amazing pizza breadsticks and the TV with the, the VCR. It was in my mom's bedroom. So we were plopped down on the floor. And I remember like it getting over and didn't feel the same way about it that Lacey did, but Lacey like lingered there after the credits were rolling. Like, you know, and that's just how you know when you really love a mm-hmm. film. Yeah, for sure. I was 10 when Scream came out, so I was a little bit... I didn't get to see it and experience it until I know my... That was more my sister's movie, because her and her friends experienced it. I was more like Scream 2 and 3 era when I started to actually, you know, be able to rent these movies. Yeah, and makes sense. And I, I honestly, and you know, I know, people hate this movie too. I'm actually more of a fan of Urban Legend. That kind of was my era of these floating head era movies. That's what they're usually <laughs> called, aren't they? Yep, yep. You know, and I know that movie's not perfect at all either, you know. It's fun. Yeah. You know. Yeah, I, li- I like it. It's fun. It's got Robin England in it. That's all that matters. <laughs> and thank you for sharing that story. <laughs> you know, and thank you for sharing that story uh, there, because now I want breadsticks. <laughs> I remember bread. Yeah, this place, they still serve them here where I live, and they're still amazing. <laughs> oh. <laughs> yeah, I, I want to say Scream was probably the first slasher that I saw in the theater. It's not the first horror movie I saw in the theater, but because I'm, I'm trying to think of that era like between like what, 90 and 96 when I, you know, go from being like kid, kid to teenager. This, there, It's not that there weren't slasher movies, but I think just like the big, you know, blockbuster type slashers were kind of dying out or they were in a down period and Scream really brought it back. So there's a lot around screen besides just the movie itself to talk about. And, you know, it's always going to get the credit for that regardless. Um, but yeah, it, it, I guess for anyone listening to this, you know, they can dig up our screen five episode from earlier in the year where we get into it. Cause I, I feel like we, we did go after like some of the elements we didn't, oh, we were not so high on, but overall, I still think we all thought, didn't think it was a bad movie or right? like, Sometimes I think like our criticism makes it seem like we didn't like it. Like when I look back on episodes, but I'm like, no, nah, we still said we liked it. It's just, it's not, I, we were not like, oh, nine, ten 10 
out of ten, yeah. you know. Oh hell no. <laughs> <laughs> and that was our uh, Scream Five. Uh, I actually throw. still got a C Scream Threat Five too, so I still have no opinion on it. Wow, Derek, you haven't uh, seen it. I'm gonna save money to go to Disney World. I'm that actually not surprised Derek hasn't seen it. It doesn't seem like <laughs> something he would rush out to see. Hell, if it wasn't for the podcast, I wouldn't have rushed out to see it. Honestly, yeah. <laughs> oh, I'm, yeah. You know, I was like. Just, I, I didn't want to go to the theaters. It's just fucking they laid this trip to go to Florida on me. Like, uh, well, there goes that. Sorry, Scream. Oh, you're going to hang out with Uncle Nudie. Yeah, yeah, he's down in Florida, isn't he? Yeah. He is. Oh, shit. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, that was a good else? burning question, Mike. Yeah, I guess that was the running question. What did was it? What did Nikki think about Scream Five? <laughs> uh, I guess technically we were doing news, but I really didn't have any news. That kind of bounced off the news item. But uh, Venom, Derek, even Nikki, I guess. Anyone have any news that they want to bring up? Uh, 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 me and Venom lost a big chunk of our childhood today. Uh, yeah. Well, well, a few days ago. Yeah, two days ago, I think. Yeah. Hmm. Uh, uh, famed uh, sci-fi Japanese actor Akira Takarada has passed away. Me and Venom probably know him most for his multiple roles in the Godzilla franchise, including the original 1954 film. And, uh, yeah, he's a man I always wanted to meet. You know, I was actually going to go to G-Fest before COVID happened, and then COVID happened, and yeah, fuck you, COVID. <laughs> Where was that taking place? Chicago. Chicago. Okay. Nice. Yeah, but uh, yeah, I just it, it's just like a, you know, like when people like, why are you posting? You didn't even know this guy. Well, I didn't, but I grew up with like it's like multiple celebrities that we. It makes you feel like you know you're getting older when you see people that you grew up watching die. Sure, absolutely. Yeah. Hey, we all we all post R.I.P. Uh, messages on social media when one of our favorite celebrities uh, passes away. Doesn't matter whether you met him or not. It yeah. met, what matters is that they had an impact on your life. And celebrities, you know, even though we may never meet some of them, some of our favorites, they have a major impact on our life. In some cases more of an impact than our own family members. So, yeah, I'll be the first one to admit I shed a little tear when Stan Lee died. Yeah. I, yeah. You know, I, I, I don't cry when I have family members die. But, I mean, for, for my experience uh, throughout my life, my childhood, my early adult years, Stan Lee and the Marvel Universe really, you know, I mean, hell, my name is Mr. Venom. There's a fucking reason for that. So, yeah. Um, I, I will fully admit, you know, there, there's there's probably a handful of celebrities that I've actually shed a tear, you know, when they've passed away. Ronnie James Dio is probably my biggest. <laughs> I fucking love Dio, man. Dio, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Damn it. <laughs> now I'm sad. Shit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, what? you do feel it on an energetic level when you're so you know, so used to certain people that you grew up with watching. It it does affect you. Uh, yeah. My wife, I mean, hey, my wife broke down uh, recently for Betty White. My wife is the mm-hmm. biggest Betty White fan I know. I mean, we literally have 
DVDs of like all of her series, the Betty White show, Life with Elizabeth, all the Golden Girls. I mean, and and literally my wife found out that she died as she was going to work, which obviously ruined her day of work. But yeah, she came home from work and she was still a wreck. So yeah. I mean, don't ever, ever give someone shit because they're sad for a celebrity death. Because, yeah, we don't know them. We've never met Betty White. But guess what? They made a bigger impact on our lives than you did. So shut the fuck up. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And the arts are, you know, in a lot of ways. And the other thing I find, you know, I I don't know if amazing is the wrong word or probably the wrong word, but it just interesting is like, you know, in modern times with modern medicine, you know, you're assuming as as a collective human beings, we're living longer, but still the amount of people that are like that pass, even like celebrities where you think they'd have access to all like the best medical care and stuff. The sheer amount of like celebrities that still pass away in their 60s, because like you hear someone pass away and you assume, oh, they're probably like, you know, upper 70s, 80s, maybe even older. And it's like, oh, 66 years old. And you're just like, damn, like. It, there's still even with uh, you know um, modern advances and everything, it's still not out of the ordinary for just mm-hmm. natural causes for no for no reason you can identify that just sure. pass away like in their sixties and it, it almost makes you look at your own mortality as like we get older because none of us are there at like that point yet. But Speak for it, yourself, it feels well. Yeah, yeah, you're I guess a decade <laughs> ahead of me but <laughs> still it's just like you you start looking at your own age and you're like man like i'm not that far <laughs> not that far it's funny too because for me it's actually sports sports is what makes me feel old because i actually watch collegiate sports and sometimes i'll watch athletes you know play basketball or football through college then they play an entire 15 to 20 year professional career then they fucking retire and it's like jesus i remember this kid coming out of high school and now he's a 40 year old man it's like ah now i feel fucking old well yeah especially <laughs> like i mean obviously kobe bryant that's a whole different oh, thing because yeah. it was a it was a tragic accident but <laughs> the fact that we knew him from such a young age because he got drafted straight out of high school. So it's like, you kind of watched him uh, like, and not, not just like local people from where he grew up, but just on a national stage, he, people were aware of him since 18 years old. And then all of a sudden he's retiring. It's like, Holy shit. Like that many years have gone by. And I, I remember watching this dude dunk in the NBA when he was like barely not a teenager anymore. Yep. That's the other thing that you were talking about the age number thing that doesn't sound that big, that old. That's another thing about getting older. As you get older, ages don't sound as old. Like now I'm getting to the point when when I hear somebody that they died at 72, I'm like, oh, so young. You know, because I'm less than 20 years away from that. You know, so it's like I said, our own mortality definitely affects the way we look at uh you know numbers and uh you know things around that subject yeah. so yeah i totally agree yeah, i think it's i think it's also like about perception too like i think our, our words are very powerful and like if we, we say things like oh i'm too old to do this i'm too old to do that then it's kind of like placing defeat on yourself when you have you know this present moment right now to do what you will and it's like taking like a stance of, I believe the aging process is amazing. And it, just like a little yeah. shift in perspective of the words does a lot. Yep. 
Yeah. Are you a psychologist, Nikki? Um, no. <laughs> just an old soul. Ah, that's like she she just plays one on the podcast. Yeah. <laughs> she's great, you know. You know fucking, but yeah, it's like you know, it's like when I'm you, you go through that where you're saying, Well, I'm too old for this when you have Willem Dafoe's like sixty six doing all his own stunts and fucking the new Spider Man. You're like mm-hmm. Damn, I'm gonna cry when that man dies. And Morgan oh Freeman, he did not do his first movie role, like his first breakout movie role until he was in his 50s, so. Yeah. And he's still going. <sighs> now I'm sad. Okay, let's, 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 let's talk about some weird, sleazy, weird mixed giallos. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah um, we're going to take a quick break and come back with Derek's pick, so Derek's going to be captaining the ship from here on out. So stick around for a couple of movies. I seem to have left something in my room. Have a good night, sir. I see this playing house in one of three ways. You want to know? Oh, yeah, of course, that's why I called him. The victim has to be a prostitute. Your guess is on the way up. Thank you. The first step is to get her tied up and gagged. She'll probably try to run and scream. Is everything all right, sir? Everything's fine. You could still kill her. What? <laughs> First one, she knows what's going on. I want a way to remember this. She's being fake. The second one is that she's like crazy and wants to die. So take her home and stop her, right? Yeah. What's the third? Third one is she wants to buy some time. What's the nastiest thing you've ever done? Oh, God, I don't like that one. I know, that's the worst. Just wanted to make you happy. There's something wrong with you. This is when Mima proves herself. The price of fame 
Don't worry, Mima. It'll be all right. May not be worth the cost of identity. Where did this come from? How do they know so much? Innocence is lost. Dreams become nightmares, and privacy no longer exists. Where everything you do can be seen by everyone, and those you trust are really those you should fear. Your life no longer belongs to you. Excuse me. Mega Entertainment presents. Satoshi Khan's animated psychological thriller, Perfect Blue. Excuse me, who are you? Excuse me, who are you? Yum, yum. It's time for a tasty and refreshing snack. to satisfy your hunger, your thirst, your sweet tooth. So visit our refreshment center now. Let's go. And now, on with the show. And we are back, listeners. That is right. I am staring the ship. And I don't think in uh, traditional No More Room in Hell uh, fashion, we actually didn't announce what the episode's movies were. They don't need to know. Uh, but of course, uh, if they listen to the end of the... I did announce what they were and posted on the page. That, of course, is... We're starting off with 1997's Perfect Blue, which is a film that... I gotta give a big shout-out. We were actually just talking about him off-air. Mr. Jerry Herring. <laughs> you know, uh, he's the first one to actually kind of told me about this film. I came late to this movie as I think it's getting its reconsurgence because of the new Blu-ray release that came out from Shout Factory and other things that are coming out about it. Plus, it's slow, like, uh, connections to other movies from a certain director, (laughs) Darren Aronofsky. (laughs) You know, but, uh, yeah, it's a very interesting movie. It's an anime movie directed by Satoshi Khan, who's a phenomenal director. If you look at this guy's catalog of movies, he did Millennium Princess, which is pretty epic, Tokyo Godfathers, which I think won Best Picture, Best Animated Film of that year. I believe and, so, yeah. And uh, his final movie is Paprika, which is... Kind of in vain with Perfect Blue, it's a sci-fi psychological thriller, which it kind of has some of the same knowledge that actually, fuck it, I'll say it, we just mentioned this direct, Christopher Nolan ripped this movie off with Inception, <laughs> Paprika, you know, but uh, yeah, anime, it, the interest in history, uh, well, I'll, I'll give a little blip, uh, 
plot synopsis first before I give you a little bit of history I found out about this movie. A pop singer gives up her career to become an actress, but she slowly goes insane when she starts being stalked by an obsessed fan of what seems to be a ghost of her past. Yeah. And, you know, the main character, Mimi Kigori, is a, you know, she was part of a band named Cham. You know, J-pop. Very J-pop. And, you know, the thing about this movie, it wasn't originally started as an anime movie. This is supposed to be live action. What ended up happening was a bunch of the backers actually backed out right before this movie was supposed to go in production, and they lost pretty much their whole budget to make this movie. So they decided they still wanted to tell the story, so they made it an anime movie. And what I describe this movie as, it's a psychological Japanese thriller with little hints and nods to the Giallo films of prior year of the 70s. And, uh, yeah, it definitely is. It has the little mystery angle. And, you know, it's told kind of similar to, like, a few of my, uh, uh, like, the late 80s Giallo, A Blade in the Dark, where they mix film with uh, the real world, what's going on. And it's a very interesting aspect. Uh, of course, like I said before, Darren Aronofsky is actually a huge film fan of this film. He actually bought the rights because he was originally going to remake this film, but as you know, it had, but, uh, there's a few movies that are very influential from this movie that was made by Darren Aronofsky, like wrecking for a dream. If you guys haven't seen that movie, they actually lift the fishbowl scene from this movie in that movie. And also this movie also parallels with his, uh, psychological horror film known as Black Swan, which kind of has the same, you know, things that are going on. She's slowly going insane in that movie. But overall, I think uh, Perfect Blue might be the superior storytelling effect and has a kind of a better ending in that sense, too, where, you know, Black Swan's very down. <laughs> <laughs> Like most of Aronofsky's endings to his movies. But, uh, you know, uh, I'm, I'm kind of curious. I'm going to go to our guest first because I think this might be the first time watch for her. Uh, first, Nikki, before you give your thoughts on the movie, how familiar with Japanese anime? And was this one of your first Japanese anime movies that you ever seen? No, it wasn't the first one I've ever seen, but I have seen very little of the genre. I am very familiar with Death Note, and I saw that in the theater with some friends back when it came out and absolutely loved it. So I was very intrigued when this was selected to be watched and talked about. Yeah, so uh, what were your thoughts on the film? Yeah, I enjoyed this. I thought, for me personally, what my interpretation of it was, was that it was a film much about identity and being true to who you are. And 
it was just very interesting in the sense that this is about a pop idol who is adored by the world and then certain people have certain perceptions about her but it's almost like she wants to break out of what people think she is people think who she is and she she branches off to be an actress because she's still figuring out more about who she is and I thought that that was really cool but what happens is there are certain people who because of how they saw her as a pop idol when she was a singer, they just have this very different take on her as she's branching out. And there's a lot of different perspectives on her situation when she goes into the film industry. It's it's almost like she starts out in some very dark roles to begin with. and And then you kind of see the after effects of that and also how some of her other fans took that and not liking it. But it's, I think it's like very interesting how it shows a progression of her, her mental health and how certain things are affecting her and how she's grappling with who she is as a person and how we can certain, we can have certain perceptions around people who are celebrities and are in the limelight and then it was was like kind of like what you were saying about that documentary Mike that plays a little bit in this in this film um but it's I really enjoyed the storytelling and I think that it did a very good job at showing what depression looks like um like the scene where she's sitting in her bed and it's just like like her belongings are like kind of crowded in on her and I I really felt for her when I was watching that scene and it it wasn't like I remember like looking at it going well she's she's this pop idol but yet there's this other side of her that like the whole world did not see so as the story progresses, you learn a lot more about some of the people in her life and how it affects her. And just for me, it was a film much about identity, mental illness, perception. And I thought it was very well done. I enjoyed it. Nice. Yeah. Yeah. Michael. Yeah. I didn't know much about the history, but it, it is interesting that it was originally supposed to be live action because I felt like this story would lend itself to being a live action movie, especially uh, with its message. And I think, um, you know, this came out in the late nineties and it was obviously the story resonated then, but I think you could even say it resonates even more now, especially with the explosion of the internet and social media where these uh, these issues are probably even more intensified because now you can even take it from the world of celebrity to just the world of like kind of internet celebrity where people put on like a different persona for their online presence uh, versus, you know, how they are in the real world. And if they build up any type of following or, you know, quote unquote fame um, or even revenue streams, because, you know, it's, it's 
not uncommon now that people make good revenue solely through, you know, online mediums. But if that involves taking on a persona or some type of phoniness in order to make the revenue, it could probably wear on them behind the scenes what people don't see you know one day once they turn off their uh broadcast or whatever and they have to go back to just being their normal selves they could almost feel i think um shit i can't remember the term um is it called imposter syndrome whatever where it's like they they almost feel guilty about having to put on the act for something I, i'm not sure if that's if i'm correlating the right thing with the right thing but um I you know you I think you get the gist of what I'm saying, but I, I think this movie touches a lot on those points. And watching it now, you like to me, you could watch this and think it is newer than it actually is because of the specific issues it tackles. And while it is completely relevant for its time, I, I think it even translates even more now. Uh, you really feel for the character, you know, especially in that industry, you know, they're they're probably getting pushed and pulled into things that they're told, Oh, this will be bigger and better. Cause it looks like, you know, when she originally was with her musical group, which is really what she was striving to be, it looked like they were on their way to having, you know, some type of success, but she kind of got plucked out of it, you know, by the people around her and said, no, now we're going to make you an actor and you're going to go even bigger and farther. And she had to compromise uh, not just maybe values, but like her own identity to take on like something that other people want her to be. And you see how that contributed to her psychosis going forward. And then, of course, we get to the conclusion by the end of the movie. But, yeah, I thought it was great. Um, yeah, uh, I guess I'll leave it at that for just opening comments. But I was a fan of Perfect Blue. Then, um. Short and sweet, folks. This movie is a fucking masterpiece. Um, this movie is so expertly written, expertly put together, expertly scored. And we're going to get into a deep discussion on color theory later on, because the color theory in this film is some of the best I've ever seen in cinema. One of the things that I really, really love about this movie more than anything is how Satoshi Khan really is trying to put the viewer in the shoes of Mima in the sense that there are a lot of misdirection scenes in this film. He, the director really wants his audience to be as confused as possible. I mean, it starts right from the opening shot, right from the opening shot. You're watching what looks like a TV anime show of this uh, power Tron team, kind of like a power Rangers ripoff. Yeah, but then but then the camera pans back and you see that it's not television. It's actually a live show. You're actually at a live show. So right there, right from the opening shot of the movie, there's misdirection. The director is already there trying to confuse you, trying to alienate you, make you feel isolated. Uh, the very next shot after the power tron shot, we see a close up of a police light and a, and a siren blaring, which makes you think that something really intense must have just happened. And then once again, the camera pans back and it's actually just a little kid riding his bike and he's got like a little fake police light on it. So uh, that's just two examples in the first two minutes of this film of some of the expert misdirection throughout. Obviously, we've got our major red herring, Manmania. Our uh, Mimania, our uh, creepy-eyed guy throughout, our stalker, if you will, um, oh. probably one of the biggest red herrings in cinematic history. I mean, 
Giant I, Peter Laurie. Oh, God, yes. <laughs> uh, I mean, literally, the first time I watched this movie, I would have been willing to bet money halfway through of who the killer was in this film because it didn't seem like they were trying to hide it. And then when you get that reveal on first watch, it, it is just one of the best what the fuck moments um, of this film, of a film filled with what the fuck moments. And I got to say, Derek, spectacular pairing because both of our films this week are loaded with what the fuck moments. And I love yeah. movies like that. Movies that, you know, that, um, take me out of a comfort zone and, you know, uh, and they go in a completely different direction than where I expect them to are movies that I just, I, I love them. And both of these do exactly that. Um, and some of the, some of the scenes in here are so brutal. There is a rape scene in here that is, um, it's a cinematic rape scene in the sense that they're filming a TV show, uh, Double Bind, I believe is the name of the show that they're filming that uh, Mima basically quit her band to become an actress on this uh, uh, show or movie. I'm not even sure if it's a series or a film that they're... Uh, I don't know. It's, it's a weird TV if they have rape in it. Yeah, well, it is Japan. <laughs> yeah, that's true, too. <laughs> so, um, but, yeah, just... Uh, and even... Oh, man. I love the use of the double-bind footage in this film. Once again, uh, used by the director to misdirect the audience. Just when you think you're watching Mima get approached on the street by a talent agent, the camera pans back and you realize, Oh no, that's a, that's a scene from the show that they're uh, filming. Um, I just love that. Just keeping the audience on their toes right up until the very end. I absolutely love it. Um, uh, the visuals, I mean, what can we say about the visuals? It's anime. They are stunning. Uh, by the way, no one's even mentioned, this is Satoshi Khan's first movie. Yeah. His first movie, and it's a freaking masterpiece. I know that we kind of see that a lot more over the last five to ten years in horror, where a lot of directorial debuts have been really good. You know, obviously the Ari Asters and the um, St. Maud movies like that, you know, where there are first time directors that are absolutely blowing us away. But in the in the late 90s, this was not common practice. Uh, this was not a common theme. So, yeah, kudos here uh, to Satoshi for, you know, just putting out an absolute masterpiece on his first go. Um, the characterizations throughout. I mean, there's nobody. I always talk about hateable characters um, on Fresh Cuts. I do it a lot when, you know, when we're watching movies like unrealistic, hateable characters. And this movie doesn't have any. There are no hate. They're they're hateable because they're supposed to be hateable. What I'm saying is that their characterizations, you know, you're not rolling your eyes at any line deliveries in this movie. You're not laughing when people are trying to be serious, trying to deliver a serious line or whatever. You know, everything is very grounded in this film. Very, very dark and realistic. You know, they're not really going for laughs or double entendre too often. Mm-hmm. Man, I, I feel like I'm I'm kind of all over the place because th- this is a movie that I've, I've waited years to talk about. And what's funny is that no matter how much preparation you do, you're going to you're going to pale in comparison to uh, the reviews that Jerry Herring did for this movie. It's kind of funny that uh, Derek actually mentioned Jerry Herring earlier because the best breakdown of this film I, I've ever heard in my life comes from Mr. Jerry Herring. I don't remember. He's done it twice. He did it once on Kill the Cast, and then he did it as a guest spot on another show, too. I don't remember which one it was. Teapots. Teapots. It was a summer series. Thank you. Yes. 
Ah, his breakdown of this film is just absolutely masterful. If you if you can go back and check that out, do it. Um, but yeah, I mean, again, I, I can talk about this movie for hours. I mean, this is supposed to be just our general thoughts, and I'm just going crazy here. Um, as I said, I, everything that's been said about this movie thus far, I agree with 100%. I love movies like this that are open to interpretation. You know, can you do you take it at face value? Is it more psychological? You know, is it representing, um, you know, identity, depression, uh, a loss of self, things like that? And ultimately, everyone is right. Whatever your interpretation of this film is, it's right, because uh, Satoshi Kon left us with a story that's so open for interpretation that uh, it's just a stellar, stellar story. Um, Something that I watch, I just picked up that uh, uh, steel book as well. When actually, when Derek mentioned we were going to be doing it on the show, I ran out and got it. It's a movie I should have owned anyway, uh, because it's so goddamn amazing. But uh, now I've got the same steel book that Derek has. So I'm a very happy boy. And yeah, this will definitely be in heavy rotation at the Venom household. I mean, I, 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 when I say 10 out of 10, I, I just I, it's not hyperbole, folks. There's not a wasted shot in this movie. There's not a wasted second of this film. This movie is under 80 minutes. It's 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 um, it's labeled as a minute, uh, an hour, 21 minutes. But the movie is pretty much over. You know, there's just like three or four minutes of credit. So you're looking at an under 90 minute movie, uh, under 80 minute movie. Excuse me. That just gives us so much story, so many layers um, it's it's just an absolute masterpiece. If you have not seen it, uh, please see it. And um, by the way, folks, uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna do a spoiler warning right now. Uh, I know that we try to tiptoe around endings sometimes out of respect for people that haven't seen them. Perfect Blue cannot be discussed without spoilers. This there is so much to discuss in this third act that if you have not seen this movie and you are interested in watching it before we kind of ruin it for you please pause and go check it out. It is available on YouTube for free. Uh, I believe it's the English version that's on YouTube. So check it out. But yeah, uh, we, you know, we're not, we're not going to dissect this the way that Jerry Herring did um, just because I don't have six hours to do that. But I mean, we're going to, we're going <laughs> to, we're going to try to make Jerry proud on this one because there, there's so much to unpack with this one. Um, but I, I'm going to go ahead and step down because I feel like I've rambled enough. <laughs> yeah. You did, buddy. <laughs> you did great. Uh, God, I mean, when movies like this don't come around that often, you know, movies that are just near perfect, and it's the first time that I get to talk about them. So, yeah, I'm going to have a giddy ear-to-ear grin on my face this whole episode. Just both of these movies are so great, but this one specifically, as I said, absolute masterpiece. There's not even an argument there. It, it's just so... St- I, I, I'm actually glad it's an anime. I, 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 I agree with Mike that this really would have lent itself to a, like a high budget, you know, big production live action film. But what we got is so just fucking perfect that I would never want to change anything about yeah, it. Yeah. And I really hope Aronofsky does never does anything with that license. Just put it in a vault and leave it alone. Let's borrow scenes like you did for the last 10 years. Yeah, I mean, you're more than yeah. to rip it off. That's fine. But yeah, do well, not. Uh, it's, it's funny you bring that up because I was like, I am kind of actually surprised that a live action remake hasn't been like in the works yet. You know, but 
Man, yeah, I agree. Like some of those visuals of the ghost version of Mimi when she's like the pop idol, when she's just floating on buildings, like how the fuck do you do that live action? It's gonna be expensive. Oh, you're not. I mean, if they were gonna make this live action, <laughs> yeah. Uh, the dream sequences, the hallucinations, yeah, that's gonna be really pricey to set on film. That final chase, you know, where we're kind of going back and forth between the visage of uh, Mima and, uh, you know. We'll get we'll do the reveal eventually, but I, I want to go on a little journey here with everybody. So yeah, um, it would be an expensive movie to film, but it could be done. Hell, if they could put Lord of the Rings to film, this one can be done too. Yeah, I just don't fucking want it to be Darren Aronofsky. No. It's funny because Derek brought up Aronofsky, <laughs> and like I can see elements of Black Swan in this for sure. There's elements of almost all of his movie. There's there's elements of Mother in here. You know, where she had a psycho- kind of a, a, a psychotic breakdown too as the movie went along. Same thing here. So yeah, Aronofsky definitely yeah, Requiem has for a Dream too. With yeah, the, with, the, with the fish. Oh, he's with got the a fish. thing for women kind of you know mentally breaking down in his films. Well, I don't well, know. He's the, whole th- the whole the whole thing from the fish that's in Requiem for a Dream is from this movie. Absolutely. And it's done so much better here. <laughs> so much better. So much more emotionally impactful. Um, and, and don't get me wrong, Requiem for a Dream, Requiem for a Dream is the best film that I will never watch again. That is one of the most depressing fucking movies I've ever seen, but it is a stellar film. It really is. If you haven't yeah. seen it, if you're feeling bad about your life, watch this movie. You're going to leave feeling so much better about your, your own life after yeah. you see what these people have to deal with. Yeah, and you'll <laughs> think of Keith David in a different way. Oh, God. Stop reminding me. <laughs> Unless you start watching and you're like, oh, my God, that's me. Oh, God, no. <laughs> I feel so bad for you if that's the case. Yeah. <laughs> Although, I, I, guess, I guess in a roundabout way, in Requiem for a Dream, you could say more so than, like, any one specific addiction to a substance. It's just about addiction, period, Let's yep. to anything, mm-hmm. so... That's why it's such a powerful movie, because on the surface level, yeah, there's a lot of like nasty stuff going on with drugs, but it, it's really more just obsession and, and addiction, period, just like addiction itself. So mm-hmm. that was the, that was for a while, like the the movie I would always if I knew I was watching it with someone for the first time, I would more watch them than the movie because I wanted to see like, their reactions to certain scenes. <laughs> yep, absolutely. Yeah, one thing about this film, this kind of will segue into spoiler territory a little bit. Um, I just wanted to get your thoughts on this. Um, Mima's character, what blew me away about her was how compassionate she was with everything that happened. Did you notice that, too? I mean, she's she's got a gigantic heart. She's obviously a very Mm -hmm. good person. Um, it's very empathetic to, you know, what's going on around her. So, uh, yeah, I, I mean, it, yeah. maybe not as strongly as you noticed it, but yeah, I definitely noticed it. Yeah, it's she has the ability through everything going on. She's really keeps herself well centered and like balanced. And um, that's one of those things where like in a remake, you would think they'd be tempted to like make her go more off the rails than she is. But I think they handle it well here is she really feels like you know she's being used and somewhat abused through various mm-hmm. stages of her bird 
burgeoning career, I guess you would say. And mm-hmm. uh, but she manages to keep her heart centered and in a good place, and not totally, not totally lose herself, despite like you know some of the psychotic breaks that she experiences. Still, you see the goodness in her throughout the whole movie. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah. yeah, like the the car scene at the end, she jumps in front of it and it's just like whoa okay um so that's like kind of where i saw her compassion and then um also how she visits the uh the mental illness um facility at the the end and just kind of her her demeanor it was it was almost like she had that forgiveness and that compassion whereas you know a, a lot of people would some people would hold on to the hatred and um, want to be revengeful, but she didn't approach it from that place at all. I found that very angry. Yeah. That whole scene at the, uh, at the mental hospital, man, it, that is such a powerful scene that I, I don't know that everyone catches how powerful that genuinely is. I mean, when, mm-hmm. when the doctor kind of asks her, you know, I, I can't believe you still come to visit that one line that she says is such a gut punch, uh, you know, basically, um, she made me who I am today. She's literally looking at the woman who tried to end her life and is basically giving her credit for making her the perfect version of herself that she was looking for. Yes. And, oh, that is so huge. Yeah. And then oh, I got a question so about the end that I couldn't really find. Um, Cause I watched both the English and the, and the, and the Japanese version. Derek might know where I'm going with this question. Um, in the Japanese version, the final line of the film is spoken with Rumi's voice. But in the English version, the final line of the film is uh, Mima's voice. And I wondered, is there something specific about that? Like, is the Japanese version kind of going for a different kind of ending? Because it, basically, folks, at the end of the movie, Mima visits the hospital. She visits Rumi. She goes back into her car and then she looks into her rearview mirror, takes off her glasses and just says, nah, I'm the real one. But in the English version, it's Mima's voice. In the Japanese version, it's Rumi's voice. And I always uh, like I I found some stuff online, but no one can find an explanation or what that might mean. Was was her mouth moving when she was saying it? No, no. She's saying it internally. It's internal. Maybe it was Rumi from, you know, in the Institute's voice that we were hearing, though. I mean, I guess it could have been. I mean, because in the the English version, it seemed very obvious because she takes her sunglasses off, she looks in the rearview mirror at herself and says, no, I'm the real one. You know, almost like a a final bit of affirmation at the end of the film. But then when I watched the Japanese version, it didn't sound right. And when I went on YouTube trying to find something, yeah, I found videos where uh, people are saying that there are two different voices in the English and the Japanese version, and that Satoshi Kon probably had a very specific reason to do that. I don't know. Maybe it works better for American audiences that it actually is Mina because uh, Mima, because maybe it gives the movie more closure. Whereas if it's Rumi's voice, maybe it's a little bit more open ended, a little bit more ambiguous. I'm not sure. Like I said, I'm just kind of throwing darts into the darkness at this point. Yeah. But I did find that interesting, though, that, you know, like I said, because it's the exact same one, word for word. No, I'm the real I'm the real her or I'm the real one. And I don't know. I just found that kind of odd. But, yeah, I mean, like I said, I, I, 
Nikki bringing up the uh, the mental institution scene really brought that up. And man, I would love to find an answer. Obviously, you know, Satoshi is he's no longer with us, right, Derek? No, yeah, yeah Pat Farika, he passed away. Exactly. So, yeah, so we'll probably never get the full explanation on that. But uh, I like little mysteries like that. So I'll take it. Yeah. Uh, I just like the whole thing where they actually look good. You know, the person who's, you know, because it does dwell into, like, the Internet of that era, sort of, with Mimi's Room website, is right into this obsessed fan, Mr. Minara. What's his name? Minara? Uh, Mimania. Mimania. Yeah, there we go. And, you know, like, uh, I'll just call him Tall Peter Laurie. <laughs> and, you know, he's getting him involved, adding him to, like, as a scapegoat or, like, you know, like the red herring, like we said. And, you know... Man, I had no idea either because these both movies have ice picks in them, too. Yep. (laughs) (laughs) It's almost a perfect... It's ridiculous how perfect this pairing is. It really is. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, when that pizza delivery scene happens, I'm like, whoa! Holy shit. And and there it is again. There's Satoshi Kone purposely um, confusing the audience because what do we see in in that scene? We see Mima killing the photographer but obviously once we get to the end of the film and we get the reveal we we find out mima is not the person who's killing these people so why are we as the audience seeing mima kill the photographer mima's not here it's not like we're watching this through uh uh, what's it called unreliable narrator you know it's literally we're watching a murder scene and for some reason there's mima on top of him stabbing him to death with an ice pick and then like i said later on we find out it wasn't mima so again just um masterful um you know uh misdirection use of misdirection and confusion from this director oh my god this is what makes this movie a 10 out of 10 like I, you know, just among the plethora of, of other reasons. But like I said, the misdirection in this movie is some of the best I've ever seen. And like I said, potentially one of the best red herrings ever with Mamania, uh, you know, the, the crazy stalker. I just, man, the fact that it turns out that he's not nearly, I mean, he's still mentally broken in his own little way, obviously, to be able to be manipulated by Rumi. But the fact that he, for the most part, is an innocent person who was just manipulated just is just insane. I mean, you just see him in the very first shot um, during that Cham performance early in the film. Yeah, and instantly, you're face. just like, that's the killer. <laughs> instantly, you see his eyes. His fucking eyes are gray. His eyes are gray. I mean, how is he not the killer? <laughs> and he's taking a fist like a man, like getting punched right in the face. Like, eh, it doesn't hurt. Oh, right, he gets his ass whooped, and it, and it, it doesn't even bother him. Yeah, that's that guy is definitely not, you know, all there in the head. But ultimately, he wasn't the killer. He was he kind of a hammer guy. to his head. Oh, the hammer. Uh, mm-hmm. And the fact that that doesn't even kill him, too. <laughs> yeah. He finishes him off later. Ah, God damn, this movie. And this movie is fucking violent. You know, a lot... Like, in its advertising, it doesn't really make it, like, if you watch the trailer or whatever, it doesn't really make it look like it's a, you know, a gory film. I mean, there's a lot of off-screen death. Like, the very first kill in the movie, we don't actually see. We just see the aftermath. But it's a pretty fucking gnarly aftermath. Yeah, I mean, a guy the guy's eyes. Eyes missing? Hell yeah, dude. 
Sign me up. So yeah, this is a way more brutal film than most people anticipate because critics and fans alike speak so highly of this. I think a lot of people don't expect it to be as visceral as it is, but yeah, expect a really bloody good time with this one. (laughs) Yeah, and Rumi, her character, she actually used to be a pop idol, right? Yes, former pop star. Yeah, I thought that was an interesting dynamic in the film as well and kind of added another (laughs) huh shades of jealousy throughout yeah um and just like to relive what she used to be but doing it from a perspective of not really who she is i found that interesting yeah yeah yeah. I mean, if you if you really, really watch this movie really carefully, like like meticulously on your first watch, you can kind of tell mm-hmm. who the killer is. Um, there are clues throughout. Yeah. I mean, she sure. she actually calls Mima's apartment, Mima's room, multiple times in the movie, which is of course the name of the website. Um, when you think about the the text, uh, you know, the blog post that that, that the supposed Mima is putting up on the website. There's only two people in the whole world who would know that information. Well, three, I guess. Mima, uh, Rumi, and then the other guy, the manager guy. Total Kaka uh, or whatever. The, yeah. Uh, yeah, exactly. So yeah. like, as you're watching the movie, if you're very, really, really meticulous, you should be able to figure out who did it before they kind of um, reveal that. But you're so just entrenched in this movie and just so kind of invested in the story that you're not really – thinking ahead or at least most people aren't going to be really thinking ahead they're just going to be enjoying what's put in front of them because like i said there's not a wasted frame in this movie and, and not you, a wasted shot not a wasted second i mean it's just the, the thing the thing that i got on this view window that i didn't get is i kind of have a feeling i know that there's sort of a backstory of rumi's psychosis and why she's crazy to begin with sure and it's when she breaks down during the fake rape scene where she's watching mm-hmm. and you see her fall and you know maybe in her past she kind of maybe had a moment like that. Uh, absolutely. Could... Either either she was raped mm-hmm. herself or potentially she was just made to do something she didn't want to do by a manager or an agent or something. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, yeah. Yeah, and that's the fact definitely... That... Oh, go ahead, Nikki. Yeah, I was just going to say that's definitely one of the scenes that um, you were referring to, Venom, where you could have potentially picked up on that she had something to do with it. Because when that happened, when she was crying, I was like, wow, she took that really hard. So that was like one of the moments, I think, in my subconscious mind where I started to question her. Yes, Mm -hmm. absolutely. Yeah. uh, And that the whole scene with like the fake rape, too, and kind of like the aftermath of that you get the sense that, you know, she, she's kind of losing agency with being able to make decisions and stuff. Whereas, you know, when, when she was kind of gaining popularity or not, I don't know if popularity is right. Gaining a career, I guess, through being in the musical group, they were still early on, but they were starting to rise to fame, but because it was something organic, something that she, you know, was fully immersed in. And that was really her dream. So when she gets plucked out of that and now they are pushing her and she's being an actress and she's out of her comfort zone, 
it's like she feels much less ability to even say no to things that she wants to do and you you, you feel bad because you're just like i can imagine that situation I, I think you know everyone probably goes through those situations in their own life maybe not to that degree but you still probably get pressure put on you to do things whether it's work related or just life or you can be something casual that you go along with that you really don't want to do but you you don't you don't feel like you're always in the position to say no and it's a it's a horrible feeling to to be in that situation yeah I, I, I hated the mentality, though, of, and obviously Rumi is mentally broken for very obvious reasons, but it really bothered me, her and the uh, the older gentleman, the manager guy, um, their mentality that she's ruining her music career or that she might destroy it. It's like, why couldn't she go back? I mean, have you never heard of Cher, Jennifer Lopez? I mean, pe- people go back and forth between acting and music all the fucking time. Yeah, it, it really bothered me that that was such a sticking point in the movie that she's quote unquote ruining her music career. It's like no, she could come back and be just as popular as ever. That doesn't mean anything. So, but again, this is coming from Rumi, so you kind of have to take everything that Rumi says in this movie with a grain of salt because she's not the most mentally stable person in this film by any stretch. Yeah. Mhm. Oh man. Man, but if I can. Uh... It is fucked up after you see like the aftermath when she leaves that the band she was with is just made of like a top ten song without her. Oh, they had their biggest yeah, their biggest hit ever right after she quits. Uh it's gotta suck. <laughs> Oops. Oh, what are you gonna do? I mean, you know, it all worked out for her anyway. I mean obviously she had to go through a little bit of hell. But by the end of the film, you know, she seems like she's kind of self realized and, you know, she's successful in her career. They talk about the success of double bind. And like, I, I think there's like a little newspaper clip or something. Um, so, you know, so she's, she got what she wanted. Um, but goddamn, back to that rape scene, that rape scene. I feel like that's the moment when old uh, Mima was created because did anybody notice that right after the rape scene was the first time that we see old Mima. Yeah. It's almost like that's where she disassociated herself, where she kind of separated, uh, you know, Mima from Cham and Mima the actress. And then that kind of started the whole, you know, kind of mental battle that obviously Rumi took advantage of. But, man, I mean, I, you know, obviously I'm not an actor. I have no idea what it's like to have to go through, you know, that kind of emotionally draining scene. I couldn't imagine what it's like for a woman to even have to fake a rape, but... It, it seems like it would be just incredibly intense. And that breakdown that she had right after that made just 100% sense to me. Yeah. And literally, my, my heart just bled for her in that scene, man. I just, it, my heart was broken for her because, you know, I'm sure many, many starlets in Hollywood have that same story of a scene that they just mm-hmm. didn't want to do, be it a nude scene or a violent scene or something like that. And then they end up doing it and then they just hate themselves afterwards. That's that, that's just got to be soul crushing. And, and for someone so young, too, that was the other thing that really struck me. Mima, <laughs> she goes from teen pop idol to nude model in like two point three seconds. Like I, the, the transition seemed so quick. I'm sure I'm sure in the actual real wor- in the world of the film, there's more time in between. 
But I'm saying, just as you're watching the film, literally, it's like she's a teen pop idol singing this cute little J-pop song. And then 15 minutes later in the movie, she's butt naked in front of a photographer. It's like, holy shit, that transition was insane. And, and she just doesn't seem like the type of person that would make those kind of decisions. Like, I, I, don't, I don't know if that was more the manager guy, uh, Tarakoro. Um, kind of, you know, egging her on to do that kind of stuff to kind of shed that teen pop idol image. You know, uh, the, I, I think we call it the Miley Cyrus now when you shed your Disney image and, you know, and, and become the uh, the promiscuous girl that that you had deep inside. And yeah. even mm-hmm. they, he even mentioned like, hey, it worked for Jodie Foster. Yeah, exactly. It worked. What a terrible fucking thing to say. That was awful. Could you imagine how Jodie Foster felt after filming mm-hmm. that scene? Jesus Christ. Yikes. Yeah. That's, yeah. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, it, it, it definitely struck me as odd that she was so willing to do that rape scene so early. I mean, it's literally her first um, film production, you know, coming right out of Cham. It, it just seems like that's a major transition. But, you know, obviously it ended up working for, I mean, and, and not just the rape scene, but the, the nude shots and everything else. I mean, Apparently, uh, you know, OnlyFans is way more popular in Japan than it is here and much more accepted, apparently. Yeah, yeah, you do see that sometimes like actresses or even like in the music world where like they they might be typecast or in a certain role and they want to like break free from being known as that. So they go like 180 on their like first album or movie where they're, you know, they're just breaking free of like everything they used to be known for. And then they do that for like, you know, a few years and then they realize, okay, I went way to the other side of the spectrum. So I'm going to even reel Mm -hmm. that back now. Yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, like I said, I'm not going to say it doesn't seem realistic because I'm sure it's happened plenty of times in the real world. You know, young actresses, young, you know, pop stars kind of not necessarily forced to do things, but, you know, strongly implied by their managers that that it would be good for their career. And, you know, just the regret that they feel from having to do that stuff, blah, blah, blah. I wonder how Miley Cyrus feels. Hey, hey, Mimi, Mimi, did you meet my friend Harvey Weinstein? Well, yeah, I, and that's the thing. It's like, and I think a lot of times in that certain, like the late teen, early twenties, like it, it can get wrapped up with the label of being about empowerment. But then when they get older, they realize like, okay, I was just being sold that it's empowerment when really it was the people around me crafting the image and they justified it by saying it was empowerment. And I'm not really, I'm not, and I'm not saying that statement as a judgment because ultimately only the people the person the pop star i guess or actress in this case only they know what's in their head how they actually feel about it but i'm sure that you know the studios or music companies or whatever behind them are definitely pushing them in a a direction that they think is going to sell more so it's like okay put two and two together and yeah. kind of see what's going on. Yeah. For sure. Oh, man. And then the last thing I wanted to talk about with this movie, I mentioned it briefly earlier, is the color theory. Okay. The color theory in this film is just so stellar. We've seen some great examples of color theory in, you know, in the world, obviously, stuff like Suspiria. Um, 
But man, the use of the color red in this film, holy shit. I'm not sure if you guys noticed the prominence of red throughout the film and how the use of it became more and more prominent as they went along. Um, what I was able to find is that the director wanted to make the color red kind of rep- a representation of Mima's psychosis, which is why as Mima kind of becomes more disassociated from herself, we see more and more red, um, especially in scenes where Rumi is there. Um, I'm, I'm not sure if you guys noticed, but red it must be Rumi's favorite color because almost every outfit she wears in the movie has red in it. Yeah. Um, and we start, I mean, right from the beginning of the movie, well, maybe not from the beginning of the movie, but from the first major plot point, which is the letter bomb. Um, if you notice, the guy who handed the manager the letter bomb is wearing red. Um, the, the color red's almost used as a harbinger in this movie. Like, whenever you see something really, really red, it's kind of easy to figure out that something's about to happen. Um, the scene where um, the guy w- uh, was killed in the elevator, um, not the first one, but the later one where we actually see him getting stalked. And remember the elevator door opens and there's the radio on the floor? What, me, co- what color was the interior of the elevator? Red. All red, <laughs> my friend. Yeah, and what happens five seconds later, our poor boy gets killed. Um, so it's just, like I said, uh, the red there. Um, Rumi, a Rumi inside of um, Mima's apartment setting up her internet. As you're in that room, every time the camera pans over to Rumi, there's, well, Rumi's obviously wearing a red shirt, as she almost always is in the film. Um but we see more and more red in the apartment in the shots that Rumi is the center of the shot. But then when the camera, the camera angle changes back to Mima, we're still seeing red, but it's in the background. It's not in the foreground, kind of mm-hmm. symbolizing the psychosis kind of coming. Because obviously early in the film, you know, Mima's fine. You know, she doesn't think that she has anything wrong with her. Um, this is Rumi kind of starting to kind of plant the seeds of doubt and um, guilt, especially, you know, um, guilt for what her career is becoming, that she's no longer the squeaky clean teen. She's pop- she sent, she sent her Palpatine in it. Yeah, I'll go with that. Um, the scene right before the rape scene, um, when Rumi, uh, not Rumi, I'm sorry, when Mima is reading the script, <laughs> what color is the script? Incredibly red. I mean, solid red, just beat fucking red. Um so, like I said, yeah, the red definitely becomes more and more prominent in the film as Mima kind of loses herself. Um, oh, and then a, a big one, and and this is kind of one that made me actually start to believe that Mima was the killer, uh, the scene where she breaks the teacup. If you remember, Rumi, again, is wearing a, a red top, but then yeah. when she... Then Mima breaks the teacup and shows her hands and there's blood on both of her hands, which to me kind of has the dual symbolism of the red, you know, kind of, again, symbolizing this, her psychosis becoming more prominent. But then also the literal translation, there's blood on her hands. Yeah. So, it, again, there's uh, Satoshi Kon fucking trying to confuse us because I'm, I'm looking at that shot and I'm like, wait a minute. Is that literally, am I supposed to take that literally? There's blood on her hands? Or is that a metaphor? And as it turned out, it was a metaphor, so I'm okay with it. But yeah. And then Rumi's final outfit. um, The outfit that she's chasing Mima in throughout the city. 
a solid, solid red throughout um, the blood. Obviously, the very bloody scene where Rumi gets, you know, um, where she falls on that piece of glass and has her abdomen cut open. Again, lots of blood on the road. I mean, man, you could talk for <laughs> you could talk for like a half hour just on. The, in fact, I found a couple of fucking YouTube videos online that were literally like 30, 40 minutes long just on the color theory of this film. I'm giving you the very abbreviated version uh, because, like I said, you know, I'm not here to try to, you know, one up anybody else's review because, as I've said, bigger and better podcasters have reviewed this film to, you know, immense levels of success. So I'm not trying to bring anything too terribly new. But, yeah, I mean, we can't discuss this movie without discussing the color theory throughout. It is just the, the way it's used. I mean, the next time you watch Perfect Blue, keep that in mind, that whenever you see something really red, it's kind of a harbinger for what's about to happen in the film. And I just absolutely love that. And then, like I said, um, once and then once we get to the end of the film, the very last thing that we see in the film that's red are the roses that Rumi is holding in the mental facility. Yeah. Uh, see that she's holding that dozen roses. And then when Mima walks out of the place, what color is everything? Red. It's blue. Oh, blue. It's all blue. She's wearing blue sunglasses, blue um, earrings, and the interior of her car is blue. And when she looks in the mirror and says, no, I'm the real one. I feel like this, this was her, Perfect um, blue. her this was her self-realization moment. This was her realizing that she is now the perfect version of herself. In other words, perfect blue. Boom. Mic drop. <laughs> I have, that is so cool. I have to tell you, I don't know if you're familiar with the chakra system, but the bottom chakra within um every human being is what's called the root chakra and it's red and it's actually associated with fear. And so what you were describing in the film, I think like all of all the times where red was shown was like, these are the scenes that you're supposed to be scared of. Something big is coming like something fear based. And the color blue is actually associated with the throat chakra, which is the chakra of truth. So when things turn blue at the end, She's speaking her truth. She knows who she is. That is so, so cool that you, you mentioned that. Oh, and that is so cool that you mentioned that. I know nothing of chakras, <laughs> so I'm learning something today. It's, it's just, a very spiritual concept, but I the, thought that that was cool how Venom, it related. Did Venom and Nikki just become best friends? Yes. <laughs> Time to go play karate in the basement. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> New podcast watch, coming next week. watch Cobra Kai. but yeah i mean i I, i've still got like three pages of notes here but i i just you know we got to move on as great as this film is i mean we can't dedicate three hours to it because we have another great coming up right behind it so yeah i mean the long and the short of it is folks i adore this film i love this film to no end it is it is easily my favorite um murder mystery type anime. I am more into horror anime, you know, demons and shit like that, Vampire Hunter D and whatnot. But, you know, for something that's more grounded in reality, this this thing is an absolute masterpiece. I mean, 
There's no reason not to love this movie. Obviously, if you're not an anime fan, you're not going to get into it. And if you're not, you know, into kind of dark subject matter, you know, kind of film noir, because there's even elements of film noir in here, too. But without the shadow, I know noir means black. So usually it means a lot of dark and shadow. This movie is very noir without being dark. Uh, well, in, in color tone anyway, in lighting and color tone. So, yeah, just just more um, influences on this film that just. Oh, God, I'm sorry, folks. I could talk about this movie for three hours, and I really got to shut up because I ramble. <laughs> Derek, I want, shut me up, goddammit. I want those skulls, goddammit. <laughs> but anyway. Nikki has no idea what we're talking about. <laughs> listen, to, listen to the last episode. You'll know, Nikki. Okay. <laughs> all right. But, uh, but uh, yeah, I think we all recommend Perfect Blue. That's for sure. Yeah. Which is always good. But now we have another movie to talk about. And uh, this one, we're going 12 years into the future to 2018. Uh, this is Pearson. Uh, directed by uh, No More Room in Hell MVP Nicholas Pesh. This is the return. We talked to him because he directed Eyes of My Mother, which was an older episode that we did. And... Uh, yeah, this is written by him. It's based on the novel by Ryu Murakama, Kami, who I know because he he wrote the novel that uh, was based on a film. No, it was turned into a movie known as Audition. <laughs> Same author. Makes sense. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. This one was actually a first-time watch for me, so I will go first. I really enjoyed this. I had an ear-to-ear grin when I heard the music from the movie Tentacles at the opening credits of this movie (laughs) with the Mr. Rogers neighborhood apartment buildings going by. Oh, man, the miniature work in this movie is stellar. Yeah, I love it. I was thinking I was waiting for Mr. Rogers to walk in. <laughs> Devin amazing. <laughs> but uh, anyways, yeah, I loved it. It's pretty great. There's a lot of dig into it. Definitely probably need a second time watch for me for this one. To dissect it. But there's a lot of things going on. I like the cat and mouse angles that go on with the two lead characters. Uh, Christopher Abbott's an actor. I've seen a few times. He's in uh, Mike's favorite movie there. Uh, what the fuck's that movie he blew? Possessor. Yeah, Possessor. There we go. Oh, yep. And then we have my uh, MVP for uh, a lot of the movies shows that I do is Mia Wasikowska. That's close enough. <laughs> who, uh, who uh, you know, we, me and Venom did a show when we did Crimson Peak. She's in Park Shin Wook Stoker. Mm-hmm. You know, she she's a great little actress and you know, she she, <laughs> she yeah, we'll talk about it in a minute, but yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh I dug it a lot. Uh so I will go to Venom next. Venom. This this is a very, very fun movie. Um, this is a second time watch for me. I did watch it back in 2018 because I thought we were going to do it on Fresh Cuts, but we never got around to it. Um, yeah, this movie is fucking fun. And I, I also will double 
what Derek said about Nicholas Pesky, um, an amazing director. I'm going to forgive him for the grudge and just say that that was a paycheck because everybody deserves a paycheck. I mean, after you do Eyes of My Mother and Piercing, literally two of my favorite movies of the 2010s, uh, you can be forgiven to do the money grab. So, you know, I'll forgive you for the grudge, buddy. But yeah, Piercing, this movie, from the first fucking shot of this movie, um, looking at these miniatures, these gorgeous miniatures that you're not even 100% sure if they're miniatures at first. You kind of got to, you know, after a few seconds, it's like, oh, okay, yeah, it's very obvious that they are. But then when we actually get into that first uh, scene in the apartment and the guy is holding an ice pick over his infant child, holy shit, already you know you're in for something special. Um, you know, I, I mean, I, no part of me thought that he was actually about to ice pick a baby on screen by any stretch, but just the, just that image. And then after that, you find out that's his child. That's actually his child, and, and that's his wife. It really sets up this roller coaster ride beautifully because this movie, it, it surprises me at every turn. Like, like before I saw this the first time, I actually had by accident read a synopsis. And I forget what the exact synopsis was. It wasn't the one here on IMDb, which would have been a lot better. This synopsis is a lot more ambiguous. Um, the one that I had read was something like, um, you know, a, a man takes a prostitute to a hotel to murder her, but the tables are turned, something like that. And I just fully expected it to be just another, you know, killer becomes the, the victim type movie that we've seen umpteen times throughout the years. But that's not it at all. This movie is just, it's two people basically bouncing off of their own craziness. Like both of these people are mentally broken. Um, you know, obviously this guy, uh, what's his name? Reed, uh, our main male character, Reed, obviously because of his history and kind of seeing the things that his mother did, um, you know, throughout his life definitely impacted who he became and as, as an adult. And then we don't really get a whole lot of backstory on Jackie, but just watching her development throughout the film from a fairly normal, I mean, she seems like a well-balanced, you know, high-priced call girl. She, you know, she lives in a really nice apartment. She has a lot of really nice things. She talks very gleefully about the espresso machine that she has that she absolutely loves. Um, so, you know, you see this and you think that, yeah, this girl's got everything on the ball. And then fucking out of nowhere, it turns into one flew over the cuckoo's nest. Literally, she she literally goes into the bathroom to what we assume is going to change into like her sexy clothes, you know, to to perform her task for the evening. And what's happening? She's stabbing herself in the fucking thigh with shears, not just scissors, shears, the big fuckers, leaving these gigantic like 50 cent coin size holes in her thigh. And from there, it just doesn't. It doesn't relent after that. It's just the insanity of this movie, the downward spiral of this movie. And then uh, just where it goes, you know, once we get back to her apartment and, you know, the, the, the trials and tribulations of these two and kind of and then the big reveal of which I won't get into right now. But then the, the major reveal in the second act of, um, you know, uh, the man and his wife and, you know how much the wife actually knows what's going on here. 
Um, that was another what the fuck moment. Like I said, in a movie filled with what the fuck moments. Um, it's just another one that you're just like, what? Are you kidding me? It, it just, yeah, this movie on first, this is a first watch. This is a movie I wish I could watch for the first time again, honestly. Because there are so many twists and turns and just crazy revelations. Um, and then just this is one of those movies where it's really fun to yell at the screen, too. Like I, when I watch this movie, I have a lot of fun yelling at the character, telling him, dude, just get out of there. Like when he drops her off at the hospital, just leave. Just fucking leave. This can't end well. There's no way this is going to end well. Just get the hell out of there. And no, because of his baser urges, he can't just cut his losses and get out of there. Um, he has to try to, you know, continue with his plan. And obviously that doesn't work out well for him, which, you know, we'll get to here in a little bit. But yeah, overall, I love this movie. This is this is a fun, um, very much uh, just watching one shitty person and another shitty person just kind of basically bashing heads and trying to see who's going to come out on top. Obviously, there is one who's shittier than the other. There's a very distinct antagonist and protagonist between the two here. Um, I'll let you decide which is which, <laughs> but um, still just an incredibly fun movie. Very, um, you know, for a movie that doesn't have a whole lot of death, very satisfying. Um, in fact, does it have any death now that I think about it? No, there's no on-screen death in this movie. No. So, yeah. I mean, for a movie that doesn't have any kills, um, and, and it is solidly a horror film. I mean, it doesn't matter whether there's any kills or not. Solidly a horror film, psychological thriller, whatever the fuck we want to go with. But this is a high recommend for me. This is a fun, just, uh, this is another movie that it surprised me at every turn, which, you know, I absolutely love. It leaves me with a smile on my face at the end. I will fully admit I'm not as satisfied with the ending as I could be. Um, I understand the choice that the director made in ending the film where he did. But, you know, considering the movie, once again, is under 80 minutes without credits. Ah, man, I would have loved to have seen just maybe two or three more minutes just to satisfy the petty, vindictive person inside of me. I've said it before. I'll say it again. I am an incredibly petty and vindictive person. And in situations like this, when one person victimizes another for an entire film. I want to see that person get their comeuppance. It's just me. I want to see it. I don't want it to be implied because it is very implied what happens at the end of this movie. I mean, there, there's no real mystery, even though we don't see it. And even though I'm sitting here calling the ending a little ambiguous, there, there's not really any confusion as to where the movie goes after it uh, fades to black. So um, maybe just tweak that ending a tiny little bit, and this would be a ten out of ten for me. I just I, the performances are great, yeah. the twists and turns, all breakfast. the reveals. Yeah, just I, this is a great, great film. Um, high recommend from me. If you haven't seen it, it's on Netflix. What are you waiting for? Hell yeah! <laughs> you know the you know the deleted scene was going to be at the end. They're Ooh, making breakfast. They're making breakfast. Oh, God, see, I would have loved that. Ah. <laughs> Holy shit, that's funny. <laughs> oh, but, but, uh, I'm going to switch it up a bit. Nikki, was this the first time watch for you? It was. And I absolutely loved it. Like, these kind of movies are my jam. I love films like this. And... My takeaways while I was watching it, just certain things I want to kind of 
talk about and put into perspective. Um, Reed and Jackie, (laughs) you can totally tell that they both just had the best time filming this movie. And like, there's just like little subtle moments where they'll, they smile at each other throughout like the making of the film. And I could feel that I could feel the, the passion that they had for this film as they were making it. And it was just another element that was added to the film that I think made it that much more special. And my favorite line is, can we eat first? It was just very reminiscent of a toxic cycle that was going to keep being perpetuated between these two individuals, which I believe were drawn to each other because of their darkness. So when Reed first meets Jackie, he is basically setting up this whole, right before he meets her, before she comes to the hotel room, there is this really just very cool scene switching between different scenes that he's setting up, like practicing how he's going to kill her. Like he has it in his mind that he is going to do this. And then when she gets there, the whole dynamic changes and his perception changes about her because he sees that she has the, some of the same darkness that he does because he kind of puts his plans to kill her off and he like drops everything and takes her to the hospital where he, he was just going to kill her. Now he's helping her. And it was just an interesting change. Then while she is at the hospital, he calls his wife, which when I was watching that, I was a little bit confused at first, but then I came to the realization that he was not actually having that conversation with her. Cause I was like, Oh, his wife is cool with everything he's doing. But then as it progresses, you're like, okay, no, no, she's not. Um, and it, it just kind of reaffirms that he has this very, well, what seems to happy home with his wife and his baby. Like in the very first scene, when like you see that he has that ice pick and he, the baby actually says to him, you know what you need to do. (laughs) It's just so creepy. Like you're like, okay, where is this going? And then it transitions into another scene where there's the credits and the music to this is just so cool. And it kind of gave me Tarantino vibes a little bit, which I'm a big fan of his work. And just like how they did the shots with the credits in the night sky, I'm like, okay, this movie's got me. It's got my attention. Let's do this. And it keeps going. And then like to jump ahead a little bit to where you find out Jackie has a lot of darkness, just like Reed does. And then you kind of learn a little bit more about his history. You learn there is some trauma there that's very deeply entrenched that is coming out during um, the hallucination scene after Jackie had drugged him. But it, it, it's just like this back and forth cat and mouse dynamic between them. And I actually thought it was very sexy. I thought that it was very well done the way they brought the like the realness of these characters to life on film. And I actually was very satisfied by the ending. I didn't think that it needed to 
have anymore because when they said the the second line again, I was like, okay, I like totally love what they did here. And for me, it was satisfying for me. Like I didn't need to see more of what they were doing. Yeah, would I have watched it? Absolutely. But I think they ended it where they needed to. And yeah, I dug this so much. Yay. I love this so far. Michael, you, you've been silent. <laughs> yeah. Um, first thing I'll just mention, because Nikki brought up the music itself, but yeah, we get what, not one, but two uh, Argento themes Goblin. in this movie. Yeah. Um, well, 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 the thing that caught me off guard, because it was a first time watch, is the the main music, like the opening music for this movie, is the one of the themes to the movie Tentacles, which is a killer octopus movie. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yep. And then, like, what five ten minutes in, Deep Red hits. Oh, I was yeah. like, holy shit! <laughs> I mean, I love the Deep Red theme. So any like, you, you recognize it as soon as it hits. And I was like, holy shit! <laughs> like, yeah. And then it plays some like Bruno Nicolai, like the Red Queen's kill seven times. Yeah. yeah, this movie, man, it it feels like it has elements of so much that's come before it. Like, I picked up, like, bits of American Psycho, Dexter, like, all sorts of things going on inside the, uh, the character's head. And then when you get the call girl... If for, like I think like Venom said at first, you think okay, you know it's mostly gonna be about this crazy dude interacting with a, a somewhat level-headed call girl, and then the bathroom scene happens, <laughs> and you're like, holy shit, this is they're gonna play off each other, kind of like um, audition, yeah, audition, and the second Creep movie when he gets in touch with the girl and oh, she ends up being oh, yeah. kind of crazy herself too, um. And what I like about this is, like, it's not, like, nonstop gore, but the scenes that you do get are very visceral. Like, it's not, like, the fun, over-the-top-looking gore. It's, like, the, oh, my God, that looks like she's really doing that <laughs> right now. Yeah. When she's stabbing her leg, if that's the kind of thing that, if there's anything that makes me want to look away, it's that kind of stuff where it just, it's it's filmed and created to get a reaction out of the viewer, not to like smile and laugh and like, you know, encourage it. It's like, holy shit, that just hurts to look at. Um, but I, yeah, I love like the cat and mouse going on between two um, unstable characters. I like how the power dynamics are constantly shifting between the two, right? When you think one of them has the upper hand, the other one kind of flips the script on them. And that goes on for like, all the running time where you every time you think you kind of have a handle on the POV of one of them, something changes things up. Uh, you see, you just see how it's like there's multiple different people going in, going on with each person, just how they react and what gets them to like flip on a dime or change their mind about something. And then I guess, you know, to keep it brief, cause a lot of a lot of what I would have to say for general thoughts has already been said by everybody. I agree with pretty much everything being said. Um, as far as the ending goes, I kind of agree with Nikki in the sense that you, I understand it is like an abrupt ending, but I, I guess I've seen different reviews because after I watched, it, I wanted to get 
you know other people's takes um on on the ending and it it seems like there's like two camps one camp thinks that the ending saying she's basically going to kill him and the other camp is the one i fall into where when when he kind of repeats that line from earlier earlier in the movie that's indicating that it's not going to end there and the whole cycle is going to repeat itself and they're going to keep on living out this kind of like cat and mouse thing with like no end in sight because they're it's almost like they've developed a codependency as well as an attraction and everything else right and it's like they they don't want to give each other up and that's that's what happens once he says that line again that that was my interpretation like i said i could be wrong but that's how i took it yeah, it's definitely like a weird fucking audition ending. I don't know where, mm-hmm. you know, in that sense too. Where it makes sense because it's from the same fucking author. Yeah, there's a lot to unpack in this movie, and this was a first time watch for me too. So it's obviously you're trying to interpret everything based off a one time watch, which it's not always the easiest thing to do. So I think this is one that would get even better on multiple watches. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, for sure. And it's short as hell. <laughs> you don't have to kill a whole afternoon to watch this movie. Yeah, you can uh-huh. watch both of these movies in under three, three hours. hours. Yeah, yeah, I like it. Mm-hmm. And and because it's <laughs> mostly just a two person movie, it's like you really just get to kind of focus and dig in on these two characters, like building off each other the whole time. It's and, great. It, and it ends with fucking Tenebrae. And uh-huh. it ends with Tenebrae. Yeah. yeah. Oh. oh damn it. <laughs> Damn, now I'm like, I wish you would have pushed for this for, for Fresh Cuts way back then. Yeah, I don't remember. I think something came out in the theaters the same week this came out. Because um, don't, don't forget, remember 2019 was the year that we had like a shitload of horror in the theater. Yeah, so, that's yeah. true. Yeah. But um, yeah, I definitely wish we would have. Uh, I mean, because I ended up watching it after we would have done it on Fresh Cuts. Like I didn't watch it the week it came out. But I ended up watching it a little bit later and thinking, well, shit, we should have done that one. But by the time I had watched it, it was probably a little late. The show is called Fresh Cuts, not Stale Cuts. So <laughs> you, you can over, do, overripe cuts. There you go. <laughs> you can do that for older movies. Stale cuts. <laughs> I like it. <laughs> <laughs> oh man. But yeah, yeah, this this movie is definitely a trip. You know, it, it definitely takes you on a little adventure. You know, this one night with this couple where you're not 100% sure which one is more jacked up in the head than the other. Um, the cat and mouse elements, as everybody pretty much has mentioned, are, are, are just stellar. Like I said, this yeah. movie this movie kept me on my toes, and that's what mm-hmm. I love that about cinema. You know, we can, we can watch movies, you know, like some of the movies that Mike and I have reviewed for Fresh Cuts this year that are very you know, kind of basic bitch, you know, that we've seen it before. We'll see it again. Nothing too special. But this movie, it subverted my expectations in every corner. You know, just mm-hmm. when I thought I knew where the movie was going, nope, it takes a left turn and we're somewhere else suddenly. And yeah, movies like this are few and far between. And yeah, movies like these definitely need more attention. Yeah. yeah and sure. I, I feel like this movie's great at giving you the uncomfortable feeling uh-huh. almost the entire time through every time you think it's going to settle down and you're, you're going to get like some type of um, understanding of the characters. It just does something else to make you go, Whoa, wait, like I did, I wasn't prepared for this. Yeah. <laughs> so and much. you know, you know, going back to the color red, when that red rug comes into play. Yeah. 
a lot of red in this one. I didn't find anything on the internet about color theory on piercing, but that's probably because it's still a very new movie. But yeah, even the use of the red on the uh, on the movie poster. I mean, the the movie poster is mostly yellow, but there are splashes of red throughout, which definitely yeah. gives you an idea of what you're in for. Yeah, and the sound effects that they use in the scene where he's prepping to kill her, oh, like, those were so effective. <laughs> oh, man. Watching that scene was really, I, I was actually kind of laughing throughout that scene because it's like, <laughs> well, wait a minute. If he's sitting here practicing, then that means he's probably never done this before, even though it seems like he's really, really proficient at what he's doing. Not that we've yeah. actually seen him do anything yet, but while that scene is going on, you can almost tell, oh, this is going to go to shit. There is just no way this is going to go exactly to plan. Obviously, the movie would have been a half hour long if it did, but um, yeah, it's it just and, so hysterical that he actually, and that's the other thing, too, the fact that he thinks it might go that easy. It's like, you can, this is what I mean about this guy, just, he, this guy's a terrible killer. I mean, obviously, he's only killed one person before this, and it was probably the easiest kill in the world because they weren't expecting it. But yeah. uh, just watching him do this preparation, it's like, dude, that's not going to happen. To, yeah. to the point where he's yeah. even trying to predict what she's going to say. Like, <laughs> you can't predict what a fucking human being is going to say to you in a general conversation. But that's <laughs> Uh, that's the psychosis, though. That whole that whole sequence was the one that was giving me American Psycho vibes because it was almost like like the dark comedy in the fact that like he's rehearsing how he's gonna do it because you know the the scene kind of makes him with you know he's in like the suit and all that and you're you're just like okay well put together you know um, handsome dude probably successful and but he's in this room like practicing scene murder and he it, it totally like you said comes off as a dude who hasn't done this very many times so has a bad idea or a not so accurate idea probably of how it's gonna go so it's almost you can't help but kind of grin or like smirk at, at the fact that he's practicing this so like they drop in that little kind of dark comedy at, at, at very uh, small times in the movie but um, it, it's very well done yeah, yeah, I think there were um, elements of like perfectionism too, like what you're talking about, where he was trying to perfect and rehearse and get it to be perfect, and that's not how it went at all. And then she comes in and he laughs at her when she's trying to ar- arouse him and seduce him, and that's when she goes into the bathroom and she does what she did because the, I think perfectionism was at play between both of them. Yeah, I'll go with that definitely. Possibly. <laughs> it's impossible. <laughs> There's a lot. Just in an interpretation, yeah. Oh, yeah, there yeah. really is. I mean, Jesus, the, the image of his mother, you know, getting fucked by a gimp, and they're both in gimp outfits. It's like, eh. <laughs> did he actually yeah. see that? Is he, like, perceiving that? Like, did he see something else, but just because it's your own mother, you kind of twist it to something that's way worse? Or, or or is that literally what he saw? Did he actually see his mother getting banged in a vinyl outfit? I don't know. <laughs> the, the gimps gave him a dark passenger, I guess. Yeah, apparently, there you go. <laughs> Not yeah. a very good dark passenger, though. Uh, yeah, Tarantino. Yeah, there's no code for him, I guess. Well, I mean, he's never technically killed anyone other than his mother up to this point. So it's like... Uh, that was the thing that was really striking me as odd, because I mean, he's obvi- he, he, he said he killed his mother uh, as a kid when he was younger. 
Um, even though in the movie they they kind of show him stab her, and then when the camera pans back to him, it's him as normal as we see him throughout the movie. But he does mention that it was years ago that that he killed her, blah blah blah, ages ago. So it, it was really odd that it took this long for the dark passenger to show itself, if you will. You know, I mean, when somebody with a dark mind gets a taste of blood, it, usually they're not able to control that for that long. And especially, you know, with the wife and child, you know, everything else. It's like, I mean, Dexter, it's great that Mike mentions Dexter because a show like Dexter shows that how hard it is to have a dual life, how hard it is to be that husband and father and then still, you know, kill the guilty at night. You know, so it's a beautiful comparison. Uh, I I hate complimenting Mike, but, yeah, I kind of have to on that one. <laughs> wait, wait, wait till the next time Venom it's his picks next. Oh yeah, so yeah, I'll be right back to uh, throwing shit at him. Absolutely. <laughs> By the way, um anybody else want to take a crack at the symbolism of the creepy crawly? Like what that what, what was up with the creepy crawly? I, I was oh, thinking about the whole time mm. I was like this has to be represented. There there's a metaphor something. there and I just don't know what it is. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> like is that was that her darkness trying to get into him? Was it his darkness trying to get back in? Like, they're, they're, I don't know. The interpretation of that scene is uh, it's going to take a smarter man than me to figure that one it's out. It's going to take a lot of me reading and doing research. Which I that or a lot of drugs, out. one or the other. And, and I'm down for option B. So. Was it a scorpion? Bunch of no, scorpions? no, it, was, it no. wasn't a real insect. It was like a Lovecraftian grasshopper thing. It was really fucked up looking. No, it wasn't a scorpion. It didn't have a tail. It had a lot of creepy legs, though. <laughs> does, this turn, like, does this turn Lovecraft out of That You know, I thought, be, you know, uh, because we had just done off-season, Lovecraft is kind of on my brain right now. So when I saw that little thing, that's what I was thinking, because I'm like, well, that thing can't actually be there. That's definitely a figment of someone's imagination. I just don't understand the symbolism of it, you know? Now, now I know why they use this theme song to tentacles. There you go. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, shit. But yeah, folks, if you haven't seen Piercing, I mean, you've heard all four of us kind of praise it. There's no reason to not check this out. It's on Netflix currently. Um, If you have a Netflix subscription, check it out. It is an hour and 20 minutes long. What excuse could you possibly have not to watch this? There's a lot worse things on Netflix. Oh, God. Most of what's on Netflix is worse. So, yeah, by all means, check out Piercing. A great little isolated movie. I mean, it doesn't take place in one location, but basically it's two people's movie. You know, they they drive all the action in this film. Um, I wouldn't go so far as to call it a character study, necessarily, like a St. Maud, but... Um, there's still elements of that in there of, you know, getting more information on their past. I really do wish we would have learned more about Jackie because there is something going on in her head that's not explained in the movie that I would love to. You know, I'm one of those guys that likes his explanations. You know, um, yeah. I hate I hate dangling plot points and ambiguous. I mean, you know, Mike knows and anybody who listens to me knows how little a fan I am of ambiguous endings, but you know, sometimes they work. It definitely works here. Don't get me wrong. I'm not calling this a bad ending. Uh, this is a personal thing. I, I, I just, I like to see guys like this get their comeuppance. I don't like to think that he might actually survive this because he doesn't fucking deserve it. He doesn't deserve the beautiful wife and the beautiful baby that he has at home. Um, so yeah, I totally wanted to see it. I, so like I said, unsatisfying may have been the wrong word to use earlier. 
Um, just I would have liked to have seen like two more minutes of this movie. And yeah, I, in all actuality, if, if the extra two minutes was just them sitting at the table eating breakfast, I, I, I'd probably give it a 10 out of 10. <laughs> that that would have that would have tickled me so much. You know, but even greater if they walk into a shawarma restaurant and the Avengers were there. Oh, and God. It's like no. Crossover. Then Mike gives it a two out of 10. <laughs> <laughs> So he's like, maybe I should watch it the be, It becomes an MCU movie instantly. Yep. Oh, that means Jackie's a superhero, damn it. She is. <laughs> or a supervillain, one or the other. <laughs> she's Stabby McPherson. I like it. <laughs> yeah. All right, well, I've said my piece on this one. Yeah. Uh, mic drop. Watch both <laughs> movies. Derek, Derek did great with his picks. Oh God! And watch these movies together. This is the, I, 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 this is by far the best pairing we've had on this show. I know that our, I know our very first episode was the Romero trilogy. Um, and, and, you know, obviously that's a series, so th- th- that's obviously going to pair well. But for two movies that have very little in common, as far as like you know geography and everything else, even their style. One's an anime. One's a live action. These two, the pairing of these two is just stellar. And the fact that they're both so short makes it a little bit easier to actually check them both out back to back. So that would be a strong recommend from me. And and, and then if you have time, throw Audition in there too. Yeah. yeah and we already know that Eating Alive and Killer Crocodile is still the worst picks we had. <laughs> <laughs> Were they? I'd have to think back, but yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> oh, hey, Mike. Is, is, <laughs> <laughs> oh, shit. <laughs> Let's well, get out of here before we uh, upset Mike anymore. Yeah, so Nikki, <laughs> Nikki, thank, thank you. Thank you for coming. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. I had a blast with both of these movies, and yeah, I totally agree. But watching these both for a movie night, that would make for a very good night. <laughs> Hell yeah, yeah. Th- thank you very much for joining us, Nikki. It's been, it's been yeah. great, but a little bit of time since we had a guest, so it was kind of nice. Uh, it's, yeah. And you it's like sound so much like messed up night, but great night at the same time. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, I guess I'll be the third one to say thanks a lot, Nikki, for joining us. Um, it's it definitely takes a chunk out of everyone's day to uh, be a guest on the show, but uh, we always tell guests if they had a fun time and come back, we'll let them pick uh, the movies for their return episode. So, um, yeah, anytime you want to come back, let us know. So, Nikki, you just message awesome. me and I'll, I'll make that happen. Oh, awesome. That'd be great. Thank you so much. I appreciate all cool. of Cool. Oh, and thank all you right, for bringing well, up chakras because now I have something to study tonight. Yeah. <laughs> You're welcome. It's uh, you can learn a lot about that. So all right, I'll look for a beginner course. <laughs> all right. All right. So before we get out of here, last thing we do is go around the cast so everyone can let people know where they can be heard and if uh, if they have it on the top off the top of their head, what the latest episode of whatever their stuff is. Um. So, Venom, I'll start with you. Uh, what do you got out there right, right now? This will be this will be a quick one. Uh, no More Room in Hell presents Creature Comforts Episode 6, just dropped last week. Uh, we looked at 1977's Empire of the Ants. 
Um, <laughs> yes, we like giant monsters on Creature Comforts, so you know you know what you're in for with that one. So uh, that was a fun conversation. Had a blast making fun of Robert Pine. So uh, check out that episode. is currently available. We all scream like giant queen. We, <laughs> we all try to imitate the ant queen, <laughs> which I will not do here. Uh, Listen to the episode. To Nikki's ears. I don't want to make anyone <laughs> deaf with my scream, but yeah. Um, and let's see. And then, of course, Fresh Cuts. No More Room in Hell presents Fresh Cuts, weekly podcast, um, usually out earlier in the week. Unfortunately, this week, I have a little bit of a scheduling conflict, so it's going to be a little bit later this week. But um, the latest episode is, of course, off-season, Mickey Keating's off-season, as we all mentioned earlier. And the next episode will be Ty West's X, which was just released in theaters this weekend. Look out for that. And that's it for me, Mike. All right, I'll move it on over to Derek. What do you got? Holy shit, I was going to go to the bathroom. Ah! Fuck. <laughs> I know, Damn. what the hell? Where'd all my podcasts go, man? I know. I was going to go take a bathroom break. Maybe. <laughs> <laughs> all right, I'm, uh, uh, mine's nice and short, too. Cinema Attack. Uh, no More Room in Hell, of course. Presents Creature Comforts. Uh, you know, I got... They're here somewhere uh, on the cut to the chase. Look at the back catalog. Uh, yeah, that's about it. Fuck, I don't have any shows anymore. This sucks. What happened to our just... podcast? We all had like 10 podcasts at one point. What the fuck? They died. Why is it that Mike and Derek are the only reliable podcasters out there? What the hell? <laughs> <laughs> just kidding, folks. Uh, I'm old and I have no life. My kids keep me home anyway, so I, I'm I got a well podcast. I got a day job. That's what ha- probably happened. Oh, right. You switched your shift. Well, I mean, I still have all the free time in the world, maybe a little bit less because of my new job. But, you know, the wife and I are still on opposite work schedules. So, yeah, I, I can still podcast all day, but apparently all my co-hosts can't. So what are you going to do? Yeah, it's whatever. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Nikki, here's uh, where you get to tell us your show and which co-host you hate the most. So go ahead. Oh, I love all of them. (laughs) I uh, am part of the Slumber Party Massacre podcast with Lacey, Rebecca, Carly, and Heather. And we have an episode dropping within the week, and it's about movies from the year we were born that, that we had seen. So that was a lot of fun. So be on the lookout for that dropping soon. And on another side note, I I have a my own YouTube channel called Foresight Channeler, where I channel messages in movies, books, and music through tarot cards. And that's a good time if that's something you're interested in. Check that out. Cool. Sweet. Sweet. And I, I guess I should probably mention, just in case there's any slumber party massacre fans or listeners that navigated over to this episode because of Nikki as a guest, the mic on this show is the mic that picked the uh, tales from the crypt episode that won uh, that (laughs) competition. So uh, Uh, that was me. (laughs) I'm never living it down. At least your pick counts somewhere, Mike. Yeah, I know. At least, at least, at least, I, something I picked didn't get people mad for once. So, um, as far as yeah, as far as I go, Ben, I don't really need to say much because uh, my other show, Fresh Cuts, 
I do with Venom, and he already mentioned it. Like he said, new episode coming will be on Ty West's X. So look for that later this week. Usually, I would say you'll be listening to that episode before this, but since this time we're recording after, I'm thinking this episode will be up first. But yeah, really doesn't it's matter. It'll be the same week, most likely. The main yeah. show's out, finally. Yeah. Fuck Fresh Cuts. <laughs> wow, two episodes in two weeks. What the fuck? Yeah, I was going to say, for the first time in a while, we actually hit our goal of doing two episodes in a Let's month. Let's keep the streak up, Michael. Yeah, we always set out to be a bi-monthly podcast, and for a while it's, it wasn't looking good just with our schedules, but uh, this this month, March, we returned to that um, schedule, so hopefully that's a good sign going forward. Um, uh, but with that said, yeah, I, I don't think I have anything else. So, also, I want to say a uh, shout-out for Lacey Lou, who couldn't make it today. We love you, Lacey. Wish you were here. <laughs> yeah, she'll. I'm sure she'll be here in the future. We miss you. <laughs> I told. I told her to come on the next episode so we can trash your picks. Perfect. <laughs> All right. Well, I look forward to that. Um, and then, yeah, look forward to Nikki returning in the future too. And with that said, that is the end of No More Room and Hell number 43. Thank you, everybody, for listening. We will be back as soon as possible with episode 44. But until then, let's say bye to listeners. Bye, and make sure you keep your ice picks on deck. <laughs> Adios. Bye, everybody. Hail Satan. Peace. <laughs>